Every step I take, I move my truth. Every time they tell me stop, I use. Every comment, hate that makes my feel. Gather up my energy and boom. I hear them talking, saying the way that I move is so reckless. That is a part of my mind I've been blessed with. Giving my blood so I am relentless. All right, I'm here with Ken Rideout. You're on the Keep Hammering Collective. It's an honor to have you. Oh, it's an honor to be here. I feel uh, slightly nervous and anxious, actually. <laughs> no. <laughs> Although after the beating you gave me on the run, I'm like good to go now. I don't. I don't. Well, first of all, that didn't happen. But I don't. I don't believe you. You seem like the most confident person I've ever met. You're not. Yeah. What would you be bull. nervous about? I would say, oh, oh, nervous. Oh, just self-conscious, insecure, all the things that come with being a drug addict. But, uh, <laughs> but I would say that, um, you know, much like a fighter, you you're not gonna come in advertising and appearing to be nervous when you are nervous. I get nervous about things that are important to me and things that matter. And this is uh, an interview that matters is an important is important to me. Oh, well, that's, you know, I'll, I'll just tell you how I feel about this. I mean, I've been following along on your journey for a long time. I've been a huge fan. I've been inspired by, you know, I don't know you personally, but I've seen your performances and how you can run. And it's like your times and, um, you know, we don't make excuses for our age because, you know, whatever the fuck, we're old as shit, but we still get it done. That's it. So that's been inspiring to me. You look like a, I mean, you look shredded. <laughs> Great stories, smart, capable. And so I'm like, God, this guy, I got to be on my A game for Ken Rideout. <laughs> You're going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just telling you how I feel. I mean, this, oh, thank this, you, man. It, that's honest. I mean, it's, uh, again, you know, I've looked at a lot of your story or what I've heard about your story. And it's like, I've had other people listen to podcasts you've been on. I think maybe with Rich, um, maybe some others too. Cause I, oh, I think maybe it was with, with Nick Bear. But anyway, you're just so, you know, I don't want to say vulnerable, but I mean, just so open about your challenges. And it, to me, that was, um, I don't know, it's just, that's not what men do usually. Usually <laughs> we like to, you know, everything's fine. I'm the baddest guy out there, never show weakness. And I think I was inspired, part of that inspired me too, that you were so open and honest about your challenges. Yeah, man, I, I feel like, First of all, I'm super honored and humbled to be here. Hearing all those things said about me, it doesn't even seem like you're talking about me. I just, I'm just like you say in your book, I'm just like a regular guy, just trying to do the best that I can. But in terms of sharing the vulnerabilities, I think everyone feels those things. And, you know, it's one of those things where when I start talking about it, people, and when I, when I mentioned those kind of vulnerabilities initially on Rich Roll, people really connected with it. And I'm like, Oh, do people feel insecure about sharing sharing this? Like no one's a savage all the time. Everyone has like emotional ups and downs. And um, it's been interesting to see how people connect with the vulnerabilities. And uh, <laughs> because I don't, I know what you mean about people. No one wants to show weakness. And I feel like sharing my um, vulnerabilities, I don't view it as a weakness. I view it as a strength. I'm in touch with what's going on. If I don't feel weak. If someone wants to try try me, I'm a very easy person to find. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't feel weak physically, and um, I think you know, go, having gone through recovery, they'll tell you that you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. Mm. And uh, I think talking about these kind of the vulnerabilities and the things that led me to addiction um, is therapeutic for me. And keeping that shit to myself didn't serve me very well, mm -hmm. and it doesn't serve anyone very well. Well. So you talked about 
what led you to addiction? What was your addiction? Uh, pain pills, so opioids. So for roughly 10 years, I abused opioid pain medicine 24-7 for roughly 10 years. Hmm. What And what led to that? Insecurities, vulnerabilities. Um, well, so it could be, so, vul so <clears throat> vulnerability vulnerability could be a strength and a weakness yeah not getting comfortable with it is certainly a weakness it's when you're not comfortable dealing with your emotional um ups and downs and your emotional weaknesses can lead you to look for an escape hatch from those feelings and that's what i always tell people is the drugs my experiences with drugs weren't necessarily i'm gonna get high because i want to feel good I just don't want to feel the way that I feel when I'm not high. Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel insecure. And I was suffering from a fraud complex and an imposter syndrome after I started working in finance. I went from like a poor kid in the inner city of Boston. And then I was a rich guy living in London and New York, flying back and forth on the Concord. And uh, it's crazy as it sounds that... You know, people always say money won't make you happy. And, and I, I, I say that to people and they look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, well, I was poor, then I was rich <laughs> and I became a drug addict. Mm -hmm. So did the money make me happier? No, it exposed weaknesses that were always there. Mm. And, um, you know, when you go through that, not only do you now have to deal with the same feelings that you were avoiding previously, but now you've also got to deal with this addiction problem. Mm. And it was a pain in the ass. And I think that once you go through that, <clears throat> you come to the realization that everyone's struggling with something in one way or another. And, um, you know, talking about it is the only real way out is to deal with it. Hey guys, now this one is pretty cool. Mountain Ops is giving away not just a cold plunge, but a sauna to one lucky winner. The giveaway is in honor of two new flavors of Ignite, fiery pineapple and glacier ice. You don't even need to make a purchase to enter the giveaway. But if you do buy either new flavor, you get extra entries for the giveaway. You can also snag 20% off of those flavors by using code CAM at checkout. That's C-A-M. The giveaway ends the 29th, so you better go enter now. Ignite is a healthier version of an energy drink. So when I'm trying to be healthy, I replace my monsters with Ignite. And the new flavors are two of my favorites. Head to mountainops.com to enter the giveaway for free and use code CAM at checkout for 20% off your entire purchase. The giveaway ends February 29th, so go enter now. Today's episode is brought to you by 8Sleep, the high-tech solution to your age-old sleeping issues. 8Sleep's pod cover slips right over your mattress, bringing heating and cooling tech that keeps you comfortable and sleeping deeper for a better, more restful night. You would think after hammering all day, as soon as I lay my head down, I fall asleep, but it's quite the opposite. It's truly mental, and I never stop grinding, even in my sleep. To top it off, I frequently wake up hot, and when it takes you forever to fall asleep, that's the last thing you want. The Sleep 8 has hacked my sleep and kept me asleep throughout the night thanks to its thermal regulation and cooling setting. The pod cover will improve your sleep by automatically adjusting your bed's temperature based on your individual needs. The cover can be added to any bed like a fitted sheet and allows you and your partner to cool or warm your side of the bed as low as 55 degrees and up to 110 degrees. There's no better way to improve your day-to-day -day life than better sleep. And the easiest way to do that is with 8 Sleeps Pod 3. Start the new year right and invest in the rest you deserve with 8 Sleeps Pod Cover. Go to 8sleep.com slash cam and get $200 off plus free shipping on the pod cover by 8 Sleep. How did, how did the addiction start? I mean, you just said why, mm -hmm. but 
what, did you have an injury or, or what led to the pills initially? Yeah, the first time I had them prescribed to me, I had a, um, an ankle injury and a podiatrist in New York City prescribed me seven Percocet. <clears throat> and then he would give me seven every week. I kept going back saying that my foot still bothered me. And I'd take like one or two at a time for a few days. And then I, then he'd give me the prescription and I'd change the seven to a two, add a zero, take it to a, a, like a mom and pop pharmacy in New York City. And from there I was off to the races. Mm. And then I was very resourceful. I was making money so I could buy them on the street. And I was a very good, good drug addict. Mm. I could keep myself uh, in supply. And yeah. I was very good at hiding the addiction too. Because mm. it would beg the question, like when I met my wife, like, I was high all the time and people would say when I was getting sober, she didn't really know. And then we came to like, she came to that realization one night when I just came clean with everything. And you know, the obvious question from people is like, how did she not know? And I was like, she only knew me high. She didn't know that I, there was another personality under there that I was mm -hmm. hiding. What was the difference? <clears throat> like, like, was there a noticeable difference between you high and you sober? Um, yeah, I, I think so. Mm. But it wasn't like, I wasn't a complete lunatic when I was high. I was just different. I was very high and low, had a lot of energy. Um, I'm sure the addicts out there listening to this go, oh yeah, mm. <laughs> that's something you can definitely like function with. Mm. But it was a vicious cycle. It was, it was a horrible, horrible experience, changed my life dramatically. But I'm better for it coming out of it. And I think that sharing the stories and, and, and being able to um, share the story on a platform like this is helpful to a lot of people because the amount of people that reach out to me is staggering that either they're going through it or they've gone through it. <clears throat> there was a, um, I don't want to say his name, but a very famous undefeated fighter recently reached out to me and said, I'm one day into detoxing. I've got to get through this. And I literally called him on the phone. I called his dad. And I told them exactly what had to be done. Mm -hmm. And they actually did it. Mm -hmm. They went through the, the week-long withdrawals, got to a week or 10 days sober, and then went and got a shot of Vivitrol, which is a, uh, an opioid blocker that prevents you from getting high for like three to four weeks at a time. And I couldn't believe he did it. It was, it's, it's so hard. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And do you think that's how most of those addictions start is like there's a, a real reason to use the pills. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into, you, then you need them. I think for people that are vulnerable, that have any kind of emotional, I don't know if weakness is the right word, but anyone who's dealing with difficulties from an emotional standpoint and get that feeling, it doesn't happen to everyone. Some people can uh, do cocaine occasionally. Other people do it once and they're off to the races. They mm -hmm. can't live without it. It's that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, even drinking, I guess, can be yeah. like that yeah. for some people. Same thing. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I couldn't just be a normal drinker. It's either all or nothing. That's right. <laughs> and you know how some people, you can see them drinking and you're not like, oh, he's not a raging alcoholic, but the guy's drunk every single night. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like what defines an alcoholic? Right. But he's not like, there's not like red flags and, uh, you know, sirens going off above his head advertising his, his um, addiction. And that's how I was kind of dealing with my addiction. Hmm. You said that, you know, you, you were poor and then you got rich and then you weren't happy. Were you happy poor? I mean, <laughs> no, when you're, when you're, when you're struggling for, I don't know what, what were your struggles when you were poor? Um, I always say that having money and losing it is much more stressful than never having it. When mm. you don't have it, 
you don't know really what you're missing. You just know that there's like a, a there's a um, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm trying to get there. And when mm. you get there, and you're like, holy shit, I'm not. This isn't as overwhelming as I thought it would be. Cool, I have a lot of money, but I'm still the same person. Yeah, I don't feel any happier. I don't feel like all my insecurities and vulnerabilities have gone away. Right. And I think that was the realization of like, holy shit, it, it, money is not the answer. There's, there's, there's only one way to deal with this, and that's to like do the hard work of coming to terms with some of the things that we go through in life. Mm -hmm. So you grew up in Boston, and then you, did you say, you tell me told me earlier a sociology degree? Yep. Is that what you got? <laughs> yeah. So how does that translate to working on Wall Street? Well, when I went to college i went and played football and the guys that i was playing football with at this division three school framingham state were like yo take uh sociology it's the easiest thing yeah. it's the easiest major i was like okay that's what i'm gonna do i had no it's interesting <laughs> interesting classes <laughs> not like fucking science no i mean in hindsight i liked it but it wasn't it wasn't helping me get to where i wanted to go and i didn't know what i wanted to do mm. i had no idea mm -hmm. i wanted to play hockey and that quickly was not going to be my reality I came to that quick realization and um, I moved to New York and I was working as a pharmaceutical sales rep for a few months and working out at a local gym and playing in a pit men's pickup hockey league. And um, I was seeing all these young guys working in finance at the gym. And I was like, man, how are all these kids making so much money? And they were all traders and doing different things on trading desks. And uh, I was just like, like with running, I'm like, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. I have no idea how. And a guy I was playing hockey with, a Canadian kid, said, hey, we need a um, trading assistant on our desk. And uh, and they hired me. Hmm. And I got fired like three weeks later. <laughs> fired? Why? <laughs> Dude, <clears throat> this is a crazy story. They were hazing me. They were like, it was like a locker room. You know, I was like the junior guy and they were constantly terrorizing me. And I was like, I'm not a punk. Like, why Why are they treating me like this? Like, I... I at some point, I'm going to, like, snap. Like, well, how are they hazing you? You know, they just, like, talk shit-talking me. Like, dude, oh. write that up there, you idiot. Don't write this. Write that. There was a whiteboard where we'd write the prices. And the mm. guy threw a dry erase at me. Mm. And I just slapped him. And they were like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I was ready to kill him, dude. I went crazy. Yeah. I was like, I'm, you're going outside. And he's like, I'm not going outside. I said, you're going to sleep here. Because when you come outside, you're a dead man. <laughs> they were like, ah, Ken, you're fired. <laughs> but uh. much like, you know you turning the addiction into a positive by being able to share my story. I called the young guys at Enron that I was covering. They were my client and they told the big senior trader at Enron what happened. And that guy called me on the phone who was the equivalent of like Gordon Gecko. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was huge trader. Like mm -hmm. the guys that covered him made millions of dollars. And he was like, hey, I'm going to get you a job on Monday. This Wait, was on tell me what covering means. Oh, sorry. He was a trader and we were like sales cut. We were like uh, sales traders. So okay. he, we would execute trades for him and charge a commission. Oh, I see. Okay. And that's covering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so sales right. coverage. So <laughs> he, uh, he, he says, I got a job for you Monday. I was making 40 grand when I got fired. And another place calls me that day before cell phones. This is in like 96. And the guy says, um, hey, so-and-so from Enron called and said, uh, you need a job. I'm like, yeah. He's like, can you start Monday? Yeah. He's like, all right, here's the address. See you then. I'm like, well, what about pay? He's like, oh, we'll start you at 80 grand. <laughs> I was Jeez. like, see you Monday. Yeah. But the best part is when I got there, they were like, all right, call Darren, the, call the guy at Enron and ask him what he wants to do today for trades. And he just gave me like a list of trades that was more business than these guys had ever done. Because hmm. they were like the bad news bears of trading. That desk was like, they were, 
there's like several desks, trading desks, trying to do the same business mm-hmm. with the same people, maybe like three or four real ones. And um, yeah, he started giving me all his business. And the next thing you know, like a couple of weeks later, they raised my salary to 125 grand. Whoa. And then it just went crazy from there. Why, why do you think that he gave you all those trades? Was it just how you talked to him? Did he like your personality or what was it? He liked the story. He liked that the guys were bullying me and I wouldn't take it. Mm. <laughs> he just was like, I like this. The guy stands up for himself. Yeah. And so that got you that business. Yep. Then that got you the 125K. Yeah. hundred. That was just the beginning. I mean, it was like several hundred thousand within, by the end of the year, it was like huge money. Really? It was crazy. Went so fast. Wow. In, in a year, you oh. were making 40, got fired. And then by the end of the year, you're making what? 500,000. Yeah. That's an, that's an, I don't know anything about that world. You know what I mean? I mean, we're on the West coast. Neither did I. We're talking <laughs> as far from here as you can get in a whole different world. I mean, cause you said you didn't even live in a house until what, 2013. Yeah. So you were in apartments in Manhattan or, you know, London. And yeah, I mean, what a, I mean, it's such a foreign life to me and this hunting redneck lifestyle I live. That's why it's, I'm asking all these questions about these little details because fuck, I don't know shit. No, that's cool. I, I, I haven't thought about some of them in a while, but like very quickly, then I got hired at Cantor Fitzgerald to run European and Asian commodity sales and trading. <clears throat> so I went over there, they rented an apartment for me. It was like, I don't know, $10,000 a week the rent on the apartment. It was like the nicest like townhouse in Kensington, one of the nicest parts of London. I had a brand new Porsche 911. Like it was crazy. I was like, I was, you know, a year ago, I was like barely surviving in a fifth floor studio walk up. And now I live in an entire house in London. And doing what? What was your job? Sales trading, covering, trading commodities, specifically electricity and natural gas. And so what what does that entail? So just, they were just, like utilities, banks, and um, end users of electricity, for instance, and they have to, electricity has to flow every day. So you Well, might, like in, where I worked, Springfield Utility <clears throat> Board, yep. we got the BPA line that runs down I-5. Yep. So we had a contract for this amount of money, but then also, or not this amount of power, basically. Yeah, megawatts. And then, so that's locked in, but then by it's like extra or more or something that's not locked into that. Yep. And that's like a daily type thing. That's is right. that, so that's what it is. That's exactly right. So okay. we would trade the next day power in the morning. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, power needs to be delivered to this grid. Uh, American electric has power. Uh, so, and so the, the utilities w- wouldn't trade with us. They'd usually go through a bank. Like, mm-hmm. so Morgan Stanley might have 20 different utilities that they cover and they would, the utility might call them and say, Hey, we need this. Then they'd go into the market, call me and be like, Hey, I need uh, 50 megawatts for next day power. And, and then, then how would, do you get that price? <clears throat> supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, someone has a lot and they start selling it and the, the sellers outnumber the buyers. I see. But like during the summer, if, peak demand is huge and air conditioners are running, the price starts to spike. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get into like brownouts when you can't deliver enough onto a specific grid. I see. And so that's what you did, that was in London? Yeah. Yeah, okay, and then how long did that last? Two years. Mm. And what happened? Enron went bankrupt and the whole market fell apart. And that was also, I worked at Kenner Fitzgerald, which was on the top floor of the World Trade Center and I was in London at the time. 
So between Enron going bust and Canner losing their entire office on the top floor of the World Trade Center, they asked me to come back and take over the credit derivative business, hmm. which I knew nothing about. But I was Just always... Just explain what that is to me, because <laughs> again, I don't know fuck about shit. Credit derivatives are like options on bonds. So mm. you know there's stocks, and then there's stock options, mm -hmm. and then there's corporate bonds. But there are no corporate bond options. There's derivatives of those things. I and see. derivative, uh, corporate default swaps. So you would buy insurance on the bond, the potential for that bond to default, which should, by in theory, be very small. Mm -hmm. But if it was a riskier bond, like a lower credit rating, the default swap protection would be higher. I see. And so that's what you did. <laughs> yeah, I haven't <laughs> thought about this in so long. Yeah, so we were it's interesting. That. But that was when that stuff just took off. And then during the financial crisis, that's all the stuff that blew up. Hmm. So we were trading that. Because so a lot of defaults were, were happening? Um, it wasn't that a lot of defaults were happening. It was that we hit a financial crisis and all of a sudden things looked a lot more risky than they had been. Hmm. So the prices for those swaps went through the roof. This is super complex. But the price then of those swaps are, you only have to put up a fraction of the money. So when, if the price of protection for a particular bond goes higher, you have to post margin mm. to keep that, to show that you can pay out if that thing loses. Right, okay. And there were insurance companies that were selling default swaps on, I'm making it up, GE. Mm -hmm. They're never going defaults. I'm going to sell it for two basis points. That's 0.02% of the notional amount. Right. It's next to nothing. Yeah. And all of a sudden now the thing moves like 50 basis points against them. They've got to post all this collateral because they were like, oh, we're insurance never going to happen. Mm -hmm. And now it is. Oh. And it was chaos. Yeah. Oh, man. And, and uh, how, so like how much money were you making at that time? Millions. Hmm. And that lasted two years. <laughs> and then what happened? <laughs> When you make a lot of money, you spend a lot of money. You yeah. think it's going to last forever. Right, right. I felt like a horse's ass. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. And but so, I worked my way through it. So then where'd you go from there? So when that happened, like the whole world was upended, right? No what one year was, was this? 2008-ish. Okay, yeah. Everyone who was doing what I was doing was looking for a job. Mm. And uh, and they're all used to making a lot of money. Oh yeah, and <laughs> those days tough. are over mm -hmm. in a hurry. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was super lucky. I got an interview with um, Credit Agricole to trade just plain old corporate vanilla bonds, which was like more of a commoditized job. Like the pay range was well well known and established. No one was making millions. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I just had to reinvent myself again. Same thing when the Enron went bust and they asked me to take over that credit derivative business. I figured it out and then worked my way up to like working at a bank and figured it out. And now I was like, damn it. Right when it started to go well. It's clicking. And I just got married, just bought a brand new apartment and the wheels came off. Oh, starting back over. Oh, so stressful. And then I went to Credit Agricole and uh, they gave me a chance and that worked out well. Mm. How long were you there? Five years. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to LA with, uh, um, started a financial technology firm with a friend of mine. I knew it was a long shot that it might not work, but I needed a change. I was, mm -hmm. um, I had just gotten sober and um, I was just like done with New York. We moved to LA, sold our house 
And I met up with a guy who would change my life, a guy named Jack McDowell from the Palisades Group. He was That was an asset management firm. They managed money for big institutions. And he... Um, I, over the course of a year riding bikes together, I convinced him to let me run business development. And he was like, you know, you don't have any experience. I don't, this isn't a great idea. And I said, I'll do it for free. See if it works. Mm -hmm. And after a few weeks, it was obvious that it works. He gave me the chance and we, uh, it was like the best thing that's ever happened to me. He was an awesome mentor. We did that for a couple of years, grew the firm from like 2 billion to 5 billion raised two or three discretionary funds, like internal hedge funds, basically, for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. The finance people out there are going to be like, that's not a hedge fund, but <laughs> it's close enough for our purposes. Um, I don't know any different, so <laughs> I'm not going to call bullshit. But then Jack was like such a, such a good guy. He's like, you're wasting your time here. You should raise money for other people, for third parties. So go out on your own, basically. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, I didn't never had the guts to work for myself, mm -hmm. no health insurance. I got four little kids Yeah, and he was like, look, I'm going to pay you X amount every month for the next year just to get out of here. Cause he thought you were just wasting, wasting potential. Yes. Is that why? Yes. Okay. And he was like, I'll pay you as a consultant when I need to raise my next fund. Do you know how many people that would never happen? You know, uh, uh, somebody like that, normally they'd want to keep an asset like you. Yep. working for them because yep. they're making more money because of you. It's very rare for somebody to say, listen, I believe in you so much. You need to get the fuck out of here and do this on your own. Yes. That's I mean, <clears throat> it was a combination of things. Yes. I would help this guy bury a dead body. Mm -hmm. This is like my, my best friend. This is the guy that has had the biggest impact on my career. He's the best. But I also drove him crazy because mm -hmm. I, I never had good processes. I was never organized. I'm not a super intellect. I don't, no one's looking for me to explain different investments and uh, provide analysis of investment opportunities. I just had relationships, mm -hmm. but I, but I always knew that. You're like, a people person. Yeah. I yeah. never tried to pretend if mm -hmm. they started to want, if they wanted to talk technical about a bond we were dealing or trading, I would simply get the analyst on the line. I'm like, we pay an analyst to do this. Why do I need to know? And I'm the salesperson. Mm -hmm. So when um when when i started when when jack said to me go leave go do this on your own one of the first things that i worked on was um with david sinclair uh in boston we raised some money for a um, pharmaceutical company called life biosciences he was starting and it was successful and uh we were off to the races from there but it was super nerve-wracking because when jack said you know you're wasting your talent. Go do this on your own. Oh, I was, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. I was telling you what I was, um, why I drove him crazy. Yeah. Yeah. My process, he sucks, sucked. And this guy is super, super organized. He's got a spreadsheet for everything. Everything is on his calendar. Like I wasn't even good using the calendar. I wouldn't put meetings on. I'd forget he, and he was the opposite. So he was like, it drives me crazy that your process works for you because it shouldn't work. This is not <laughs> how shit gets done. It's, yeah. it's everything goes against the grain for everything. But I can't deny you've done everything I've asked you to do and then some. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I just can't believe it works. And it was, you know, I was, I would come and go as I pleased. Like I would, my, my, <laughs> my process sucked. People yeah. were like, dude, how is this getting done? The guy's barely even in the office. Mm -hmm. Why, was, why did it work? I've always thought that 
part of being a good salesperson is being interesting. And mm -hmm. there's nothing interesting about a guy sitting in the office all day. Right. So I would just explore every opportunity. I'd do all kinds of shit. Like whatever came up, I would, hey, I'm taking, I'm going to, I'm going skiing for the next few days with a, a client. Mm. You know, and people be like, this guy's always doing fun shit. Yeah. So you were likable. People believed in you. You, yeah. you, you earned trust. Yeah. But I also. For, through relationship. But I've also always got paid on production. If mm -hmm. I didn't do the job that needed to be done, I didn't get paid well. Right. So when I was in an environment where my pay was commensurate with my performance, I always did really well. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> how I got there was not the prettiest picture. Like, so I, I wasn't a good mentor to anyone. I couldn't tell someone how to do what I do. Yeah, right. Because I don't even know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, it's like it what we worked. talked about earlier with running. I don't know. I'm just training hard. Mm -hmm. I'm just trusting that it will all pay off. Yeah. And when, so that, I mean, it's a good segue. When did the training come in? Because, you know, for people that don't, don't know, I mean, a lot of people probably heard of you, but you're like one of the fastest, like, if you want to say masters, we, we try to compare ourselves with everybody, right? So we don't <laughs> want to, we don't want to be, you know, whatever, uh, the smartest dumb guy. Yeah, that's so, it. But we want to be compared to whoever. Yeah. But fact is you are one of the fastest masters, like say marathoners in the world. Yeah. When it, did that training come in? When I moved right before I moved to LA, I was doing Ironman triathlon when I got sober in 2012, 13, somewhere in that context, 2010. Um, cause it was before we went to Ethiopia to adopt my daughter. I, um, I started riding my bike, running again, didn't know anything. didn't know what I was doing. I knew how to swim if I fell off a boat, but I wasn't going to swim laps. Was uh, do you think the training was as replacement for the drugs? Definitely. I mean, I mean, you needed something yeah. to, to focus on. Yeah, it probably okay. still is. I don't profess to have all the answers. Matter of fact, I always tell people, don't take my advice. Don't do what I do. I'm not saying mm -hmm. it's the healthiest thing, but this is the only alternative I have found to like doing the wrong things. This is the only thing I've found the balance that works for me. Mm. Um, so I was doing triathlon, did Ironman in Hawaii three times. Um, How'd you do there? Uh, the, the first time I went there was like the like one of the most painful experiences of my life. When I got onto the run, I was shit the bed and I just quit. I was just like, oh man, I'm not going to have a good race. I'm going to shut it down three miles into the run. Like I was a pro athlete or something. And that I, oh, I'm so ashamed of myself. Even when I think about it now, I get choked up because I'm like, what a fucking quitter. It mm -hmm. was the most painful lesson that, that my friend Teddy Atlas talks about this all the time. It's always harder to quit. It's, mm -hmm. It lasts forever. Because you got to live with it. It lasts forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I'm telling you, like I'm getting choked up. I could get emotional thinking about I fucking quit like a dirty dog loser. There you was didn't, no reason. Did you finish the race? No. I just was like, yeah, this is too hard. And I walked back to the start line. Like literally, as soon as I started walking backwards, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? And my wife was there and I was like basically in tears. I was like, I can't believe I did that. What the F? I can't believe I just didn't walk. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was like, oh, well, go back next year and fix it. And mm -hmm. I did next year. I went back. I did 939, which for me was really Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. And then I did it one more time in 16, but I've, I got super sick. I had pneumonia three weeks before and didn't train for two weeks. Mm -hmm. But I went there anyway. But again, I got on the run. It was dying. And I just ended up walking. I finished right before the sun went down, which was a moral victory. It did like yeah. 11 hours. But um yeah, after 16, I just started focusing all my efforts on running. And mm -hmm. uh, I would just run in the morning before work. That's where the 10 miles a day started. Mm -hmm. And I'd ride my bike maybe like 50, 100 miles Saturday and Sunday. 
I see. And then you started to get fit. Oh yeah. Like were, were you fast to start off with when you started <laughs> to do No. I ran like, I mean, you know, I remember the first time I broke 130 and a half. Then I can remember 127, 124, 117, 114, 112, and then most recently 110. Hmm. But it was a steady progression. But it came with a very predictable workload. Like, hey, here's all the work I did, and here's how the times improved. Mm -hmm. Like it was, you can see the correlation. Every single run I've ever done is on Strava, publicly yeah. available. Yeah. So it wasn't like some big spike. It was like, no, no here's, here's a correlation between my training workload and the performance. There were a few years where my marathon time would go from like 258 to 245 to 240 to 233. Those were big jumps. But then once I got down into like 233, a couple years later, I ran 228. And then I've run since a couple times 229, a few times 230. So I think I've like run 230 or better like seven times in the last three years. How, how, how can you go... I mean, how can I run 230? You just got to run a lot. <laughs> <laughs> run okay. a lot with purpose. I, I, I hired a coach, Mario Freoli, who is um, in Northern California, and he put together. I got to 233 on my on my own just from running a ton and mm -hmm. not really knowing what I was doing. And then, um, and then I hired Mario, and he got me from 233. The first race we did together, I went from 233 to 228. Yeah, it's crazy. So fast. Even when it was happening, I was like, oh my God, I'm running so fast. I can't believe this. That's so, what's the splits on that? Five, um, 539. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, I've done a 10K at 542 <laughs> and that, that hurt. Well, that the hurt. Five, 228 was fast, but I felt like the half marathon I ran at 110 was more impressive. Like I yeah. ran 522 pace there over like six or 700 feet of elevation gain in Nashville. Like God. I went, even when that one was happening, I was like, holy shit, I'm on one. Like I am so strong. I, it was, it was like magic. What year was that? I want to say two years ago. Okay. Man. 21 or 22. And what's your like average workload for miles? So right now when I'm not in like training mode for a marathon 10 to 12 weeks before the marathon i'll start ramping up and in in training i'll be at like 85 to 100 mm -hmm. for 10 to 12 weeks and typically i'll be 70 to 80 on a normal week like throughout the year mm -hmm. so like the last two years in a row i ran over four thousand miles mm. and obviously it's 3650 miles would be 10 a day right right so yeah and then what pace are like most of those training runs at do you push or comfortable or? If, I, if I'm not in training and I feel good, I'll run fast. If I mm -hmm. don't feel good, then, you know, I'll typically like 7.30, 7 to 7.30 would be the normal pace. Mm -hmm. Like today's run would be a good. Today's like, run was hard, man. I was, I, I was like, holy shit, this guy's in shape. It was hard. Mm -hmm. I like, that was the hardest run I've done in a while. Just because of the, all the climbing and the, yeah. the steadiness and uh, all the, the change in um, undulations. And I just don't do that kind of climbing anymore since I left L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You ran. I thought you ran awesome. It was uh, it was a great day to run in Eugene. No, oh, it was the weather was perfect. Yeah, yeah. But that hill was no joke, man. I was I was shocked at how how hard it was. I didn't expect to run like that. Mm. You were in freaking good shape, man. There aren't a lot of people that would be able to do that run with us today. I promise. Well, I was nervous. I was like, <laughs> I was, you know, 
I was nervous to run with you just because like, I know how good you are. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't embarrass myself. Oh, I was worried about embarrassing myself. When you were running up the hill, I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to like, this is, this is getting hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I loved it though. I mean, four miles uphill. It's, uh, I, I just love, I'm not the fastest on flat. You know what I mean? But you know, running the mountains every day, just like anything, you're going to get better at it. Yep. I mean, so it's just after doing it for 30 years, you should be decent. Right? <laughs> you had really good technical <laughs> skills on the descents. I was like, damn, he's, I'm going to get dropped. Uh, but running no. downhill is dangerous. <laughs> you, you, like I said, if it's a race, I'll risk it all. But yeah, in training, I'm I like, know, yeah. I'll see you at the bottom. Wow. We, we had, it was great. Then the end up a Hayward is sweet. But yeah, um, that was cool. So I, I mentioned, or I mean, you mentioned earlier, the rock reached out to you. I wanted to hear that oh, story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny. Like, uh, as this stuff has kind of gained more attention, it's interesting to see in your friend groups, friends groups, like who leans into the friendship and who kind of distances themselves. I have some friends that have become like uber famous and I, and I hear from them less, but then I get a message from someone like the rock and I'm like, you know, it's like, it can hurt your feelings when you're like, oh man, I never hear from so-and-so anymore. Mm -hmm. It's like too big for me. Uh, like, I feel like it's all about me. You mm -hmm. don't think about, put yourself in their shoes of like, oh, they must be super busy with things. So one day I noticed that The Rock um, was following me on Instagram and I'm like, that can't be The Real Rock. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like, and I look 400 million followers or something. I'm like, holy shit. So I sent him a, a DM. I said, hey, thanks for following man. I loved your interview on a Joe Rogan show. Yeah. And he immediately hit me back with a voice memo like, hey, brother, Rock, I hope he doesn't even mind me sharing this. You know, just I mean <laughs> it as a compliment, but I never posted the, the, the voice memo or anything. I wouldn't share that. But it was like, yo, it's The Rock. What's up? I uh, love your content. Um, I get super inspired when I go on your page and uh, I'm going to go run through a brick wall now and hit the gym. Yeah. <laughs> you inspired me. And I'm like, I, 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 I was speechless. I'm like. I was like, show, get the kids down here. It was like <laughs> the proudest dad moment because my kids watch all those movies, Jumanji. They like, my kids one time said to me, I forget who I told them that I, that I met. Well, they, they, my jelly roll is really close with my friend, mm -hmm. with my kids. Like, so they, they know some like uber famous people, but I was like, get the kids down here. Guess who left me a message? And they're like, who? And then my daughter is like, The Rock. And I'm like, <laughs> yes. And she was like, you could see her face just like light up. She yeah. was like, the rock knows my dad. <laughs> that, yeah, that's it was, like, it was like my proudest dad moment. I mean, one of the most famous people in the world, really, oh, the rock. And I've spoken to him a few times because when I was in LA with Jelly Roll, we were all going to get together for dinner and then his kids got um, got sick and uh, we didn't end up it didn't end up having anybody. He was like, I'll hit you when I get to Nashville the next time. But it was just unbelievable that yeah. he would even think to call. I was like, how did? Damn. I wonder how he came across you. Do you know? I have no idea. Hmm. He just, he, he said he saw my content on Instagram and went on my page and then hmm. liked it and followed me. Yeah. And he doesn't, I mean, he follows less than a thousand people last time I checked. So it's not like he's out there just like following just people like sur crazy. Surfing. Yeah. Looking for people to follow. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah. But it's cool that he recognizes that he has a platform that's big enough that, and then he's like commented on a few posts, which obviously then they, they light up, right? Oh Everyone's yeah. Like, Holy shit, dude, the rock commented on your post. Yeah. And of course, then I'm like, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. Well, I wonder if, uh, cause I know he's a fight fan. I wonder, you know, you said that mentioned the podcast with Teddy. Yeah. Well, how'd that start? And, and 
what's going on there? Yeah. Um, my friend Rob Moore, who's like one of my closest allies in the world, him and I were in LA coincidentally at the same time he was doing PR and he was leaving his job at Edelman, a big PR, you know, corporate gig. And I was leaving the Palisades group and going to do my own thing right at the same time. And I had introduced Rob to some fighters in LA, specifically Mike Lee, who was a, um, super middleweight world champion. And uh, he actually fought Caleb Plants, who was also from Nashville at one point. And um, that was his first loss. But I said to Rob, you should do PR for Mike and come up with a different structure instead of charging like a huge upfront fee, like a retainer that that uh, PR usually charges. Mm -hmm. I said, charge him like a small retainer and a performance fee. And long story short, he did it. And then through Mike Lee, Teddy got connected with um, Rob got connected with Teddy mm. and Teddy had been slowly being pushed out at ESPN because he was always talking about telling the truth about boxing and pointing out like different bad decisions, bad judging. And the promoter who was working with ESPN, I think didn't like it. And he, they were basically using Teddy much less on ESPN. And Rob was like a huge advocate of uh, podcasts mm. way back in the days. Like these podcasts are the future. That's why I call Rob the pod father. <laughs> and, um, Rob got connected with Teddy and was helping him with some management and PR stuff and said, why don't you start your own podcast? You don't need anyone else's platform. You can build your own. Mm -hmm. And then through that, he connected me with Teddy and said, do you want to do this with Teddy Atlas? I was like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> goes, Does he want to do it with me? Yeah. And I was just a fight fan. So on the podcast, I kind of represent the fan's point of view. Like, you know, mm -hmm. no one's tuning in to hear my analysis of a fight right? right i just present set the fight up hey here's what i saw look like this guy was like uh you know on the gas all night he did this did that what'd you think that's what people really want to know and then he'll break down the fight mm. and we'll go back and forth yeah that's interesting because that is a perfect perspective because most fight fans don't know what the fuck they're looking no, at. No, of course not. <laughs> you know, so it does take an expert to to break it down. Oh, it really does. Because a lot of times I'll be like, oh man, it looked like this guy it was a bad decision. He's like, no, no, it was the right decision mm -hmm. a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. And then he'll explain, here's what's happened. And then from a fan's perspective, I'll ask the question that I think fans want to hear. How many robberies are there in, in boxing? Uh, dirtiest sport on earth. Yeah. Most corrupt sport ever known to man. Is that always going to be the case? Until they get, Teddy's pushing or we're pushing for a national commission to have someone oversee it like they do every other sport in the world, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's just, just so many different factions within the sport. There's different governing bodies, there's different um, sa sanctioning bodies, different belts, different sanctioning fees. You know, if you want to be ranked by the WBC, WBA, WBO, like you've got to pay them mm. fees. If you're the champ, they get a percentage, X percent of the fight purse. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. What is, so what does Teddy think about like the YouTubers boxing, like Jake Paul and Logan Paul fighting Floyd? And Teddy's like, when it comes to that kind of stuff, he's the most rational person in the world. He's like, yeah, listen, if they take it seriously, at the end of the day, this is like entertainment. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, he likes the Pauls. We had Jake Paul on the podcast. He's mm. a nice guy. That, yeah. was, that was another one where my kids were like, dad, you're talking to Jake Paul. <laughs> I was telling Jake, I go, my, I asked my kids, would they rather throw a passes with Tom Brady or talk to Jake Paul on the podcast? And they chose you. So I go, <laughs> I'd be doing a disservice as a dad if I didn't let them come in here. Guys, come on quick. <laughs> so they came onto the podcast and they were like, they were literally just standing there like starstruck. Like I go, yeah. guys, don't freeze up on me now. Come on. Yeah. What do you yeah. want to say? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> what? What did, was Jake pretty good? 
Yeah, he was on the cool. podcast. They're very cool. He's a yeah. humble, cool guy. He's playing a role. He's playing a character. And at the yeah. end of the day, it's entertainment. Half the people call buy the fight to see him win. The other buy, half buy to see him lose. But they're all buying. Yeah, I mean that's you know that's kind of Colby's philosophy yeah, too. Colby, that's right. And he's that's come. old Muhammad Ali quote: "Half the people come to see me lose, half the people come to see me win, but they're all buying a ticket." Yeah, yeah. I mean, Colby's might be. 95 5 95% wanting to see him lose but they're all watching the thing about Colby I I give him credit for being able to stay in that character for a long time and shame on the simpletons who can't see that that's a character that he's playing a role like as if it's wrestling but with real fighting and I I can appreciate it I mean look sometimes yeah I'm like dude what are you talking about (laughs) but when you realize like Chael Sonnen he's playing a role he's never lost the fight yeah everything's a robbery (laughs) Yeah, I know. He's yeah, he's still he's never lost a round. No. Chael. Oh, Chael's the best. But but Chael is like a mentor to Colby. So right. I give them but Chael's been on the show before and I said, dude, credit for being able to stay in that character. It's hard to be disliked. And he's like, I'm glad you said that, because yeah, you're right, it is hard at times. Yeah. Yeah. And uh but no, I like them. I I, I appreciate everyone's like station in life like we're all trying to do the best we can so i think it's so so easy to cast dispersions on other people and be like fuck this guy this guy's an asshole this guy's an idiot but if you take a step back and take a deep breath calm down and Mm. recognize we're all trying to do the same thing most people are good people most people just want the best for themselves and their families obviously there's some bad people out there but Mm -hmm. you know Sometimes you got to take things with a grain of salt and like give people a break. And and listen, I'm not perfect. I, I I I can be harsh on others as well. But at the end of the day, if and when you can take a step back, you realize we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Even with this divisive bullshit going on with the election, like we're all from the same country. Right. Shit goes down. It's like it's like being in a neighborhood where you're fighting with the neighborhood kids. But if kids from another neighborhood come over here, right. guys, it's go time. We're all in this together. Let's yeah. go. Get your hockey sticks, get your bats. They're coming. I, I wish, I mean, yeah, that that is the mindset. I wish everybody understood that. No, I know. You know, because it's like we do kind of these this tribe mentality, mm-hmm. and I think it hurts us for sure. Well, the key is do the best thing that you can, which is control yourself. Mm-hmm. Speak the truth. Don't go along with the bullshit narrative because it's convenient. T- tell the truth. Right. There's a lot of truths that are, aren't spoken right now because people are afraid to get labeled one side or the other. And it's crazy. Like, you know, you, we don't have to agree on everything, but we can still respect each other. I, ag- <laughs> I agree to disagree on a lot of things with my wife. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I understand that. I do. You know, in regard to the Paul brothers too, what I appreciate is how hard they fucking train. They train. Those kids train and they're athletes. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're just some YouTube, maybe they were YouTube stars, but yeah. they're not, the, you're, nobody stays the same. That's it. I mean, you're not the same as you were. <laughs> you're, you know, now you recognize myself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so th- can we acknowledge that? That yeah. these kids work their asses off and have made a bunch of money. Oh, I love it. I love watching those fights. I tune into every single one. Actually, I went to, um, when Jake Paul fought, um, who was the UFC fighter he fought? Tyrone Woodley. Tyrone Woodley. Yeah. The first one, I went there with uh, Dustin Poirier oh, in okay. Cleveland. Oh. And uh, dude, talk about chaos. We were sitting in like, I don't know, fourth or fifth row. There was literally no security there. So Dustin comes in, the crowd goes mental, but there's no one like to tell people to get to their seats. So we're sitting there and all of a sudden <laughs> there's like a swarm of people, like to the point where I'm like, 
dude, this is getting dangerous. Like yeah. Someone's going to get not fall down and get stampeded. Mm-hmm. And then they came out and they said uh, to Dustin, the, uh, you know, management people were like, hey, Dustin, um, Tyron wants to see you in the locker room. And he's like, oh, Ken, come on. And they were like, no, no, just you, Dustin. He's like, yeah, forget it then. We're not coming. He's like, okay, Ken can come too. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, oh, I'm like the 52-year-old little brother. Yeah. Was that um, before the fight? Yeah. So okay. we went in both locker rooms before the fight. It was Did just you? a huge job. I'm a super fan, man. At the oh, end of yeah, the day, I too. love this shit. Dude. But I'll tell you... My youngest son is a jujitsu fighter and uh, and and wrestles. He's eight and he's good. And um, I don't know if Teddy or someone mentioned to Dana that he's into it. So I mm-hmm. saw Dana at the Nashville show, and we were sitting cage side. I don't even know how we got into the VIP section, but I was chit chatting with Dana, and he's like, "Yo, I heard your son is really into this. Like, oh, he's convinced he's going to fight in the UFC. He's like, you want to bring him next week to Boston? I was like, oh, hell yes. <laughs> he's eight. He's never been to any kind, anything like this. Mm-hmm. Dude, I can't even, uh, I'm, I, again, I could get emotional thinking about this. Dana connect, says, connect with my PR person, call this person. And I know them from booking guests with them, you know, their, um, their PR rep. And uh, they're like, yeah, you're all set. You got tickets. Um, and Dana said, come sit with me at the fight. So I'm like, okay, maybe Whoa. we just, maybe we just, I've seen him give decent seats to people. Yeah. And I've seen him have people sitting on the cage, like mm-hmm. literally touching it. Ketone IQ is my podcasting superfood. I'm no Andrew Huberman. So talking for hours actually takes a lot out of my brain power, which I feel like Ketone IQ actually helps with. Ketone IQ is a clean energy boost without caffeine or sugar. It increases your blood ketone. I'm not on a keto diet, but by taking Ketone IQ, I can achieve the desired focus and energy for explosive workouts that ketones typically provide those in ketosis. You can find Ketone IQ at your local Sprouts or online at hvmn.com and use code CAM, C-A-M, for 20% off your first order. Mud water is something I've been using daily since I started the podcast. It's supposed to be an alternative to coffee, but I actually add it to mine for some extra health benefits. It's got four functional mushrooms and with only a little caffeine, and each ingredient was added for a purpose. Cacao and chai for a hint of caffeine and hot chocolate-like flavor. Lion's mane for focus. Cordyceps to promote natural energy. It's also Whole30 approved, 100% USDA certified, organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher. Mudwater donates monthly to support psychedelic research and has since day one. They believe the country is in a mental health epidemic and that psychedelic-assisted therapy is one of the most effective tools we have to treat mental health conditions. Today, you get $20 off when you subscribe at mudwater.com slash cam. You also get a free frother and a sample of their delicious coconut creamer. So go to mudwater.com slash cam to get $20 off your subscription and your free frother. That's mudwater.com slash cam. So we get there. I mean, my son fly up Saturday morning. He's got, he's got a Celtics jersey on it. When we bought the Celtics jersey, I said, buddy, you want um, Jason Tatum? Who do you want? He's like, I don't really want anyone else's name on it. Can I get my own name on the shirt? <laughs> so he's got his own name on the shirt. He's got a leprechaun hat. He's got his Air Jordan uh, Celtics colors on. And he's on top of the world where mm. it was, it was magical to me. Cause I've done cool stuff like this, but to be there with my little boy, it was right. like, man, the whole thing was so emotional. So we get there, they walk us, we check into the VIP, we walk in with Peter Welch, who owns a boxing gym in, in Boston. And he recognizes me. I've never met him, and he, but he watches the show. And, uh, you know, it's always, you know how it is when someone recognizes you, like, you know who I am? Yeah. Oh my God, inside I'm like, 
oh my God, this mm-hmm. is great. So people are saying hello. And Mickey Ward's there, who I know from we work together, and they're getting a lot of attention. My son's seeing them, seeing these people that appear to be famous coming to talk to me. Yeah. And at one point he says to me, Dad, like he's telling me a secret, Dad. I think you're famous. I was like, <laughs> no, no, buddy. I just know some of these people. So anyway, they walk us out to the seats. We're in the front row. Like we're arm's length from Rogan in the crew. So Rogan comes over. Says, That's where oh, Trump usually sits. Yes. Like if he's sitting by, oh, in Kid Rock. We're six rows in front of the Celtics coach. Oh, man. And it gets better. I mean, we're sitting there. And of course, anytime I go to a, a boxing or a UFC card, I'm the first person in the door. I want to see yeah, every single fight. Mm-hmm. I love it all. So we're sitting there, he's in the VIP, he's eating candies. We keep going to the restaurant, he's getting (laughs) cake and I'm just like, have whatever you want. Right. So in between the main and the co-main, Dana comes over and goes, uh, Cameron, come with me. Cam, give me me your phone, open it. Like I hand him my phone with the camera on. He takes my son, brings him over to Bruce Buffer. Buffer's holding his hand up, pointing at him like this. I'll show you the pictures after takes them over to um, Rogan in DC while they're doing the broadcast, has them turn around and take a picture with them. I'm not there, thank God, because I would have been like, no, don't interrupt. <laughs> so then he goes, Cameron, come here, get up there, get in, the, get in the octagon. And Cameron's looking at me, look at me, I'm like, get in there. So he comes out and he says to Dana, hey, Dana, next time you see me in that octagon, I'm not going to have my shoes on. And I was like, oh he's my gonna God, be a fighter. we might have one. We might have one. <laughs> he's got the, he's got the right mindset for it. <laughs> yeah. So after all that, he's, my son looks at me, he goes, dad, what about, um, Missoula, the Celtics coach? He loves the Celtics. Yeah. And I go, Hey Dana, can you introduce him to Missoula? He's like, oh yeah, Joe, get down. It practically puts the guy in a headlock. He's like, take a picture with the kid. And oh. Joe Missoula couldn't have been nicer. It was just, it was one of the best nights of my life. That's incredible. Incredible. incredible too, because it's like, you know, you, no matter what we've had for blessings or opportunities, it pale, you know, we've been around for 50 some years, yep. right? So yeah, it feels good. It's been a long grind, but to be able to, to share special things like that with your kids oh. that they could build on that, they, they're young. Yeah. So who knows how that's going to affect the trajectory of his life, you oh, know? Yeah. And so when we get those opportunities to expose our kids to this, whatever, this other lifestyle or world, you don't know what kind of effect that's going to have. That's what's powerful to me. That's exactly right. When I was a kid, I didn't have an example of or access to athletes to be like, that's a reality for a lot of people. Like that guy is doing it. That's another person. Like right. you can do that. Mm-hmm. That person did it. I didn't have that either. You can do it. But even with the stuff I've done with running, it's that they can see, your kids can see like what's achievable if you just follow your own passion and believe in yourself. I didn't, I didn't have a goal of being recognized as a runner. It seems crazy that it's even happening. Mm-hmm. It was just something I was doing. It's like you were hunting and all of a sudden people are like, damn, this guy's a good hunter. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden you kind of ad- adapt to the new role of being like, I don't even know if you call yourself a celebrity hunter, but it's like, I, you're probably the most famous bow hunter. I don't know anything about hunting, yeah. but when someone talks about bow hunting, they mention your name mm-hmm. and that's crazy, right? Because yeah, it's, it it's, it's kind of, obviously not to the same extent, but it's been like that with running where it's like, most of the people have been super supportive, but I see some people in the running community, I feel like they don't like welcome me there because I don't look like a traditional runner. I didn't take right. the running path of like running in high school and college. Mm-hmm. So it's been an eye-open experience. But like I said, it's, it's an example to my children. Like you can have anything you want. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, one of my, my oldest sons into video editing and he's like, 
he for a long time he loved dude perfect now he's outgrown it he's gonna kill me for even mentioning it but <laughs> but i'm like dude figure out what your thing is it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be trick shots it, it right. could be making videos about sne- he loves sneakers because i love sneakers yeah. so he's like i'm gonna make something about sneakers i said if you make really good videos, I'll I'll buy you those uh, Apple goggle things. I said, I'll get you whatever you want. Yeah. I always tell my kids, you know what you can have in this house if you do all the right things? Anything you want. Mm-hmm. And they're like, uh, what about a trip to Disney? I said, I'll tell you what, if everyone gets straight A's and we don't have any BS and no one has fighting with each other or something, we'll go to Disney. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, you know, the next day, someone will be, the two of the kids will be in a fist fight. And I'll be like, that's why you're not going to Disney. <laughs> we need some consistency. Remind me, speaking of shoes, remind me before you before I take you back that you need some Speedland size 10. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So remind me of that. I don't want to forget. But uh, yeah, I mean, I... I, I totally get what you're saying. And I, too, when I've been at the fights, you probably felt like, what, how am I right here? Right. Yeah. I feel like that when I, and I'm also a super fan. So I get everything you just said about being the first one in. Yeah. I live for those fights, Love but I'm it. always sitting right there going, Dana's going to come over here and say, what, what are you doing up here? Get back, <laughs> get up, exactly. get up there. Right. Because <laughs> right. it's like, there's no way this is going to last. That's right. And it kept, exactly and it keeps how lasting. I feel. Yeah. And it's like, I, I definitely don't feel like I belong there, but, but that's, that's the beauty of it, right. It. Is that I recognize that a like kind of kindred spirit is that it's so appreciated. Like the people that were sitting next to me, two influence, two uh, female influencers sat right next to us. Mm-hmm. They came for the main event. I was so angry. Yeah. And they were like, I was like, oh, what do you guys do? They're like, ah, social media. And I'm like, what do you mean social media? (laughs) The girl goes, hot chicks on social media, hot chicks on Mm -hmm. Instagram. And then I looked her up right in front of her. I'm like, 12 million followers. I'm like, okay, that's why they're there. (laughs) Well, and yeah, so the cameras are on them. They add like a little bit of, you know, beauty to the fight. You know, it's crazy. We were right in front of the Nelk boys, like Mm -hmm. all Dana's buddies from Happy Dad, and they sponsor O'Malley. Right. When O'Malley won, I'm I'm not exaggerating here. It was like a tidal wave of booze flying up in the air and people coming over the seats behind us. Like, I'm, I'm not shitting you. I grabbed the camera by the back of his basketball jersey and his t-shirt with one hand and ripped him out of there as people like all the chairs and everything collapsed into front of us like security as it was happening in slow motion i see security scrambling and as i'm ripping them out of there the people they're like grabbing me out they're like cool that was a great dad moment too you saved them they were about to like they went crazy they were mad no they were so happy oh happy yeah bear went flying they come flying over the top and all the chairs collapsed and they were like and they all just stormed the like the edge of the cage it was it was momentarily scary and then i was all right cam you had enough he's like yeah i'm ready (laughs) was was that his last fight against aldo uh or not aldo uh Uh, aljo aljo Aljo, yeah sorry yeah Yeah. no when he won the belt yeah yeah i bet that was i mean he had he does have some super fans but the yeah, being sponsored the by the Boys. Boys. He jumped over the cage, started drinking a happy dad seltzer. It was oh. it was wild. I got crazy videos on the on uh, on my phone. No, those guys are they're balling too. Oh. They're making so much money. It's it's so crazy. Yeah. But you love to see, I like seeing that stuff, but I know it irks some people because they want that. And I get yeah, it. I get that you want that, but you shouldn't have ill will towards someone else for like if nothing else, paving the way they're showing you what you can do. Like, yeah. You can do this. Yeah. How could those those kids do it and you can't? That's it. You know what I mean? That's it. I, to be honest with you, I only in the last like year even know who they were. 
Yeah, me neither. I mean, <laughs> but I got to hand it to Dana for being kind of a visionary on, you know, because he's kicked out some like MMA media, like, like, you know, I, figures have been there for years. Yep. They're not in there, but these social media kids are. Because that's that's how that's how they're marketing UFC now. You're exactly right. He's a visionary. He recognizes that the next group of fans are younger kids, and who's in touch with those younger kids? These Nelk boys are like the Pied Piper of this like next crop of fans. Or even the girls sitting there, they were there. Oh yeah. I mean, that, but that's just to elevate the UFC brand in a different audience. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty impressive how how he's built UFC to what it is. It's it's unbelievable, and yeah. I love that he's not a, a he's uh, non apologetic about everything. He's oh, like, this God. is what it is. Deal with it. Yeah, makes no makes no apologies. Lives his truth. Everyone should celebrate that. But like, I feel like this there's, there's a faction of society that like doesn't like that kind of masculinity. Right, and, and it's like, dude, you clearly don't like that because you're threatened by strong men, mm -hmm. regardless of their race or orientation. It's just like, people are just out there making it happen. Yeah. The company was worth 4 million to 2 million, whatever it was, now it's 4 billion. Now it's like 9 billion with the uh, IPO they did with TKO. Incredible. And now that they've joined forces with the WWE under William Morris Endeavor, what Ari Emanuel's like purchased them both, rolled them into one and then did an IPO TKO of the two the two um, sports, the two franchises basically is masterful. And then you see Chandler cut a promo <laughs> at the WWE. I know, I know. It's masterful like marketing. Yeah, it's, they've definitely got the blueprint yeah. for how it should be done at that level. I mean, not many businesses are at that level to be that creative or whatever, but they are and they're they're killing it. I love I love seeing it and Dana is uh Dana and uh, I think of Dana and Joe Rogan as very similar guys. They're like they'll do anything for their friends and mm -hmm. they're like never lose sight of like where they came from or who they are. Yeah. And a uh, funny story Joe <laughs> I met Joe when uh David Sinclair did his podcast and then I went to Vegas for work on one weekend when there was a um UFC show. And uh, I was texting with Dan with Joe, and he got me tickets, and then I met him for lunch, but I was away from how, my wife. How did you text with Joe? How'd that come up? Also, when I went to his studio with Rob Moore, who was representing David Sinclair, who made the introduction for David Sinclair to get on Joe Rogan's okay. podcast the first time, we went to the studio, and I met Joe. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of be were somewhat friendly. I, mean, I wouldn't say we like hit it off, or we were best boys. We were just, yeah. we were friendly. And... Um, he had said once, maybe hit me if you come into a UFC show. So I was in Vegas doing work by myself. I'm like, hey, I'm going to be in Vegas. I, I would love to come to the UFC. And then I met him and Ian Edwards for lunch one day. That's <laughs> so embarrassing. <laughs> I was there by myself and uh, in a moment of weakness, got high during the day. It was like probably the last time I ever took uh, pain pills. And I don't even know if he would know, but I was like, after the fact, I was like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. He probably thinks I'm a spaz, mm -hmm. like just hyped up. And uh, I never, I've never even told him that. So if he's listening, he can, uh, so, sorry, sorry <laughs> if I seemed crazy. Oh. But um, I think when you, the first step to like addressing and, and, and dealing with your issues is acknowledging them. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if I made anyone uncomfortable in my uh <laughs> whacked out stupor my apologies yeah but wow. uh 
He probably, he may not even have known. He may have just been like, what a fucking weird guy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, yeah, I guess we'll find out if he listens. (laughs) Joe just. I've I've seen him a few times since. He's always super friendly to me. Oh, dude, he couldn't be nicer. Yeah. I saw him when I was with my son. I saw him at the, um, once in Vegas, I went with, um, I went to his show with Dave Chappelle with my friend Ben Anderson, who was a war correspondent at Vice, and he's buddies with Chappelle. So we were in the green room and went backstage mm. and saw Joe back there and just exchanged pleasantries. But yeah, I'm yeah. sure, you know, hey, everybody, <laughs> not everybody's perfect. You nah. know what I mean? Or, nah. or nobody's perfect. So we've all had our ups and downs. I'm sure he just writes it off as what maybe probably didn't even notice, but I uh, probably didn't, but I noticed. And when, you know, when I, know. I do, I feel like it's, it's important to acknowledge the acknowledge and, and accept your responsibility. I understand. Yeah. Our, 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 you know, subconscious or our thoughts of ourselves are usually worse than everybody else's for sure. That's right. I tell people that too, when they get, when people get nervous about events or like we were talking about earlier nervous about coming on a podcast our imagination is so much more creative than reality Mm -hmm. there's no limit to what you can imagine that could go wrong right but the reality is no you've been here before you've done this before like you know who you are people are going to know who you are like unless you're dropping some crazy ass bomb on people yeah it is what it is what's the worst they could say is that guy's boring or that guy's full of shit like of all the things that people have said about me in the past that's not even scratching the surface of things that offend me what i always say is i've been called worse by better yes <laughs> so it's like until you get like maybe somebody i don't know that you really respect saying something about you it's probably gonna be okay yeah um god i was oh yeah so i was thinking like in in regard what about ufc judging because we mentioned boxing judging and being corrupt, that sport being corrupt did you watch the last card last ufc card yeah did you watch uh mckenzie dern yes i don't i don't remember that one being because people were saying she got robbed. <clears throat> she got Look, hurt. I, think, I know that. I think that anytime you have discretion, like gymnastics, mm-hmm. figure skating, yeah. you're going to have some people's interpretation just differ. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you have like someone who you think clearly won and they get and the judge says they lost every round. Yeah. And they lost 30, 27. You're like, dude, what? Right. Occasionally. But I also almost wonder, technically, I think the sanctioning body the state athletic commissions assign the judges. I don't think the organization has anything to do with it because I've seen Dana be frustrated by the judging. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder if sometimes the judges feel like they want to give the decision that the promoter wants to see because ultimately they want to keep working. And I think sometimes they get it wrong, but I think that in the UFC, it's far, far less prominent than it is in boxing. Boxing is blatant. Like if you don't, do what we need done you'll never work with us again mm. while they might not be able to assign judges the promoters can certainly dk judges and mm. referees mm. yeah i mean i that's what there's a lot of theories about like the stars if it's not a knockout the stars are gonna win yeah you know if oh in boxing oh no or even in ufc well I feel like in the UFC, there's like a legitimate, everyone has a legitimate chance. The, mm-hmm. the lines, the odds are typically like, I mean, if you have someone who's a three to one favorite on mm-hmm. the main card, that's extreme. Yeah. In boxing, it's very rare that the guy's not like a five to 10 to one favorite in most of the main events. Mm-hmm. 90%. Once in a blue moon, you'll get like Fury and Usyk, where you're like, oh shit, this is the one. Or mm-hmm. Bivol better BF. And you're like, okay, this is what the fans want. 
but both guys know they're undefeated. Like they've got to be paid a lot. That's why having the the um, Saudi uh, Turkey Al Sheikh come in and have a blank checkbook. He can put on all these fights, so he looks like the hero. But a promoter. Yeah has to make money. Mm -hmm. They have to guarantee the fighters a purse and they have to go and recoup it. That's why Dana describes it perfectly. It's like every boxing show is promoted like a going out of business sale. Mm -hmm. Everything is, what's the shittiest that we, what, what's what's the worst we can get away with without looking completely crazy? Right. And then you go to the UFC and you're like, this fucking spaceships in there and light shows that like haven't even been made available to any other venue. It's, yeah. it's, it's madness. It's right. so... The thing flows. It's like, yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm just blowing smoke up Dana's ass, but when someone's doing something great, yeah. it's like it's an amazing production. How they have that orchestrated. He's the uh, he's the Cam Haynes of uh, <laughs> of hunting. He's the uh, promoter version of fighting. Yeah, <laughs> you it's, and Dana, uh, right? Yeah, I got a lot of respect for that business he's built. But uh, so, what are your thoughts on uh, Fury and and Ganu on that fight? Oh, I think that I think that Fury clearly won the fight, but I don't think myself included anyone expected to see Ngannou knock him down and be around for the whole fight. Like right. that was as good as a win as you're going to get for me, and that's not a knock. I love Francis; I know him very mm -hmm. well, and his manager is Markel Martin is a super, super kind person and a good guy. And actually, he got a lot of hate from Dana. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he got a lot of hate. He used to Who? work at the UFC. Francis? No. Well, Francis and his manager. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's their beef. But I would tell you, I like Markel Martin. I like I like Dana, but Markel is a nice guy, in my opinion. They have their differences. That's between them. But Francis and uh, Markel showed a lot of conviction in Francis's ability to make money. They did everything yeah. they said they were going to do, and now they can write their own ticket. And if you... I think Francis Ngannou would be the most, if you give that guy two or three hours to tell his story, because that's how long it takes, because I've heard it, hmm. it is fucking insane. From where he came from, it is, to where he's at. It is insane. Yeah. He, I think he tried to get from, I want to say Morocco, into international waters off Spain and rescued by the Red Cross probably like seven times. Dude, he doesn't know how to swim. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine getting into a rough sea in a, in a rubber raft made out of tire inner tubes with like seven to 10 other African immigrants trying to get out of there. He said at one point when they were, when they made their last attempt, they were down trying to get into the water in the, in, on a rocky outcropping mm -hmm. and the waves are crashing down. And one of the immigrants that was trying to get over, one of the African guys, an older guy was panicking and didn't want to get on the boat. <laughs> Francis said, I picked up the board and I told him, get in that fucking boat. Oh, and like God. the guy got in and they, they got out in the in the Red Cross, got mm -hmm. them. But even then he went to a detention center in Spain. Then he got to go to France and lived in a parking garage for like however long, sleeping in the stairwell and boxing and training, mm -hmm. uh, boxing initially and then into MMA. But a wild story and just a super nice guy. Crazy. I mean, and you know, you hear stories like that and then you hear people complaining about life here and in our oh, country and you're on, like <laughs> you're like wow what are you talking about because that is just a story of i mean not only survival but doing whatever it takes to chase it not, not even chase a dream just live a comfortable life just to like get out of the sand mines he yeah. was working in a sand mine like i don't know if they were mining for gold or what but like incredibly hard work yeah and now to be able to make did he make 30 million on that fight I don't what, know what the number was, but I'm sure it was at least at least that. Yeah, and and he got 
criticized heavily for that decision yeah. to leave as a UFC champion, oh, yeah. you know, drop the bag. That, yeah. that was pretty <laughs> a, a famous line. But, uh, you know, so nobody really gave him a chance to no. do what he did in boxing. I thought he was going to get blown right out of the ring. Did you? Oh, I thought he I was going to I think most people blasted. did. Because you know Fury's is so good. And big. And You know huge. how hard it is to sit in the pocket like that and stand right in front of a guy who chucking punches at you like that and to be smooth in the pocket? I think that's the hardest thing about boxing that a lot of people who haven't boxed don't understand. To stand right in front of someone in punching distance with your hands up, bobbing and weaving and throwing punches and dodging the punches coming back at you and never taking your eyes off them. Go and stand in front of someone clowning around. I guarantee you, your first instinct when they throw punches is to look down and cover your head. Yeah. If you take your eyes off the opponent, you're going to sleep. Right. So to be able to keep looking at them while you're getting cracked with good shots, is it takes conviction and, and confidence and incredible athleticism so yeah. to see what he to see him do what he did was just man it was like such watching someone's dreams come true yeah it was incredible i, lo I love to see it yeah because you know that was you know that was the goal the whole time is to get that big paycheck um yeah i don't know what an incredible story but to to your point also that when you said to stand there and not like cover up or whatever it makes me think there was a McGregor fight. It might have been Eddie Alvarez, where Alvarez threw a punch, and I think it just barely hit McGregor's nose, and then didn't blink, didn't do anything, came right back probably with his left. Yep. And, I mean, just that distance management That's and just right. knowing and then not flinching. Like when a punch coming at you and to not flinch, take your eye off the target, and then react. Yeah incredible i think slipping punches in the pocket is the hardest thing about boxing to be able to sit there and they're throwing punches at you and you're just moving your head like a fraction of an inch left and right slipping to the sides of the punches as they're grazing off your face mm -hmm. is crazy because if you miscalculate that you're getting hit right in the mush by someone who can crack who's the best you've seen i mean mayweather was obviously a great <clears throat> defensive fighter but i've seen canelo with that head movement Pretty impressive. I mean, yeah. Who do you think? You, you follow think, boxing. Uh, I think that Terrence Crawford is the uh, best pure boxer in the sport. He mm. can like, he can change lefty, right, southpaw, orthodox, just back and forth, back and forth, and be just as good either way. He's been on our podcast before too, and he's mm. like talked about training to be able to fight from both both um, both positions. And his trainer telling him, "Don't do that anymore." When he was in the amateurs, and he just started knocking guys out from both stances, and it was like, "All right, wow. just do what you want to do." <laughs> but Teddy would always say that Terence Crawford does things that most people can't do. He like makes it up as he's going. Sometimes it doesn't even look like he's he's doing things that he's never really trained. It's like so he's it's so instinctive. Mm -hmm. He's like a great musician, just like making up the notes as he goes. How Teddy would describe it. And I think Canelo's great too. But I think that Terence Crawford is the best pound for pound boxer. I don't think anyone's as good. Hmm. He's yeah. destroyed everybody. And then when they said he was going to have a tough fight with Errol Spence, I mean, he almost killed him. It, it was is he undefeated? A vicious beating. Or yeah. has he lost? Yeah. No. Oh, okay. It's one like I, multiple divisions. You can check me on it. Maybe four different weight divisions. How old is he now? I want to see. He's like in his mid to late thirties. Hmm. I don't think he has a lot of uh, prime years left. The thing is when the I think that when you have fighters like that, like Roy Jones, Terrence Crawford, when they're so good and rely so much on athleticism, mm -hmm. they get old overnight. The yeah. minute you lose that fast twitch, that reaction time, like you saw it happen in real time with Roy Jones. Once he yeah. got knocked out, it was over. He got knocked out multiple times. Mm -hmm. And they just get, time just catches up to them. They're so fast. They're so good. There's um, 
I'm trying to think who was like that in like Frankie Edgar in the UFC. He yeah. was so good. And then once he, once as he started to age and lost that like quick reaction, I mean, he's still unbelievable, but the last knockout that he suffered was just vicious. Yeah. And that I think has a lot to do with aging and that athleticism that comes that, that elite athletes have that fast twitch and that's like the first thing to go with aging. That's mm-hmm. just my opinion. I hope I haven't offended him. No. <laughs> I, I like Frankie, he's a nice guy. Oh, I mean, I got so much respect for anybody who gets that octagon. Oh my God, that's I a mean, crazy sport. As fans, of course, we're gonna have opinions. And yeah. yeah, sometimes we don't know what the hell we're talking about. You you probably do just because you've been around the sport or combat sports for so long. Um, but you know who's whose career has changed on a dime, not really from a punch, but from a kick is uh, Kamara Usman's. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, a, that's a perfect example. I mean, he was, you know, on top of the world. They're t- he was talking about boxing Canelo. Yeah. Do you remember that? <laughs> well, he's the golden goose. Everybody wants to box him. Yeah, yeah, like- it's so much money. But I mean, at that time, it's like he was talking about multiple weight divisions, boxing Canelo, and then took that head kick from Leon. And it was, he was, has a one sense. Yep. Crazy. Yeah. It's, it, dude, it happens when Izzy lost to Sean Strickland. I'm like, dude, no one can beat this guy. When he mm-hmm. beat um, Alex Perea and avenged that loss, I'm like, dude, he's on another level. Mm-hmm. And then the performance against Strickland, unless something was wrong with him, it wasn't, it was not a good performance whatsoever. Mm-mm. I'm happy for Sean Strickland, but I, lo- I love Izzy. He's been on the show a couple of times and uh, he's a really nice guy. But it, Talking about those sports can be difficult because so many of the guys, like you get to know them and you like them. It's like twofold. It's like, I hate to see any of them lose the ones that you start to know and like. And you know, you're friends with some of these guys. But seeing your friends lose is terribly difficult. And then being honest, and if you have to be critical while, while still being respectful, it's hard. I always am sensitive to not try to offend anyone, but tell the truth. Like, yeah, he got smashed, you know, mm-hmm. or so-and-so, you know, it doesn't look good for him going forward. And it's like, you know, you hate to say it, but it's yeah. the truth. It's a, a fine line. Yeah, no, I understand. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, every time when Colby fights and I'm there, I'm freaking ner- a nervous wreck. Exactly. You know, I want him to, I want that belt to come back to Oregon so bad. And I thought that Leon was just going to be the, I thought it was a perfect matchup because Colby's so wrestling heavy, mm-hmm. just one of the best wrestlers. Leon, that's not really his game. He's a striker. Yep. And I thought, okay, it's going to happen. So it was like, you know, it hurt that he lost that fight. It hurt me. Yep. I can't imagine no. what the, the fighters are, you know, that's their whole life. I know exactly what you mean. It's, oh man, what a, what a, a heart. It can be heartbreaking. It can be life-changing. It can be the most incredible sport, but man, brutal. Yep. Brutal hey, sometimes. One of the things that I wanted to ask a different subject is, um, you know, as I've got more and more competitive in the running and had the like benefit of working with some really great brands and it's been incredible. How was the experience for you like to kind of come up the way you came up, you're working for the city and now all of a sudden you've got like gym companies building custom weights for you and like you know your own kind of apparel line like was there a first deal that you did that you were like holy shit this guy wants to align their brand with me Mm -hmm. do you remember which if there was one and do you still get that feeling when people want to do things like this like build you a custom weight set because it's it's awesome in here yeah thank you uh no i i expect it to all go away i mean i i (laughs) Just like getting kicked out of the UFC, like, why are you up here? 
I expect all this to go away and somebody will be like, get back to your shitty life that you deserve because you don't deserve this. And I'd be like, you're right. You got me. So that's what I expect. So yeah, the, the first, I, I remember I signed with the camo company. Um, I think it was Realtree and they're just, they make a camo pattern. And I think the deal was five years, 125,000. So 25,000 a year. And to me, I was like, this is insane. I would have done it for the clothes. Yeah, I, I, I would have done it yeah, for nothing. Yeah. It's like, and so to to say I had, oh, I had a six-figure contract, right? Yeah. And even though it was over five years, that was like, that seemed unreal. Yeah. And it still seems unreal. So all this, yeah, it just doesn't seem like, I mean, it doesn't feel like this is a life I should have. It's funny because the reason I asked it as I was uh, listening to your book, I listen to everything while I run. Um, I read so much of what you said resonates with me about like anyone can do what I've done and genuinely believe it. And it's not bullshit. It's like, yeah, why, why couldn't they? Like, I don't feel special or unique, but I think at least in your case, I think that's what makes you so um, appealing to the every man. It's like, he's one of us. Mm -hmm. He's just like, cause that's how most people would feel. And the truth is, yeah, he's like one of us because he is mm -hmm. just like all of them. And that's the same thing with the rock. I, I think that that's been one of the eye opening things that's happened to me as I've had the pleasure of meeting some of these super famous people like Jelly Roll, The Rock and Joe Rogan. It's like, we're all the same. Like I said earlier, everyone's the same. You're just trying to do the best with the circumstances that you're dealt with, that you're in, mm -hmm. good or bad. And and like I said, with the money, sometimes when things are going well, that doesn't necessarily lead to happiness. The only way to get happy is to have peace with yourself. And that comes, you don't have to win races. You don't have to have endorsement deals to get that feeling. And that's what I tried to stress to people when they ask me about, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? I'm like, that is not the answer. The answer is within you. It's, it's, it's being comfortable with who you are on a day-to-day -day basis, but trying to convince people of that is very difficult. And I don't know when I, for whatever reason, when I was listening to your book, I felt like, Jesus, this is like, guy. I feel like I'm reading, he's reading my mind. Hmm. Like a lot of the stuff was hitting home with me. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's amazing. I, yeah, I think part of it is, you know, I'm not a fighter like you, but we've had to fight for everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? And been kicked in the dick, knocked <laughs> down from addictions. You know, I, you know, had issues drinking and it's like, once you go through all these ups and downs, maybe shitty, whatever, childhood, maybe whatever, disappointment, relationships, addictions, and then you still won, that's where people form a connection, you know? Yeah. And maybe it's from afar, maybe it's just from a book, but it's just like, God, that reminds me of my, of my journey, yeah. you know? And so I think, I think we've just had to fight yeah. to get here. That's, that's a good point. And I'm, I'm, I'm in the process now of writing a book myself and it's, um, it's very, it's been very, um, therapeutic at times thinking about things that I haven't thought about in a while. And I realize I haven't thought about them cause they're painful, mm -hmm. but the only way to get through that pain is to go through it and deal with it. And, and in that regard, it's been incredibly helpful for, for me. And like you said, when people reach out and are like, I'm going through the same thing or, or, or they identify with it, it like, it keeps me motivated. It's what keeps me like going even, not that I need motivation. You know how it is. It's yeah. like, 
motivated. I, this is just what I do every day. I wouldn't even know what to do without it. Mm -hmm. But it is incredibly rewarding. And um, I'm excited to see what the reaction is to the book. But I'm also overwhelmed with um, anxiety and insecurities about sharing more of my story. Although, So it'll be a life story? Yeah, more yeah. or less. What's the title going to be? I'm, I've been going back and forth with the agents, but um, I'm not sure. One of the things that I've been like kind of toying with is calling it 51% mindset, but I don't want it to sound like too salesy, but I think of things in these terms a lot. Like I only need to convince myself by an extra 1% that I can do something or mm -hmm. that I'm going to do something. It's like the race that I did in Mongolia. I did this race across the Gobi Desert in, back in June. I was so scared and nervous to do this race and like 49% of me was like what in the hell are you doing and mm -hmm. it was like I couldn't sleep I was overwhelmed but there was one percent of me that was like I'm registering I'm doing it you know I, I was going back and forth back and forth but that extra one percent got me to say yes mm -hmm. and literally as I walked onto the jetway in Nashville to start the journey through Atlanta to Seoul to Ulaanbaatar in Mongolia as I walked on the jetway I, I literally was almost said to myself like we're gonna fucking kill these guys. I'm coming <laughs> to kill people. Like, not really kill people. I yeah. love everyone. I wanna be friends with everyone, yeah. but I wanna win. This right. is not like, oh, I'm gonna go on an adventure. No, that so people after were like, dude, was it fun? How are the scenery? I'm like, I was like pushing myself to the brink <laughs> of death. It was not fun. It was, it was work. Like, yeah. that's how I think about it. And trying to explain that even to my wife, it's like, 90% of the time is spent struggling in, in, in the effort of trying, failing, constantly pushing. And then you get like 10% or 9% of it is like kind of joyous that you realize you're going to win. And that 1% is like, yes, I did it. I won. And the next day you're like, what am I going to do next? Yeah. That moment of like, of elation is so fleeting, but it's what keeps, it's like drugs. It's what keeps you coming back mm -hmm. for more, but it's almost like. I didn't choose to do the race. It almost like, without sounding corny, it almost like chose me. A mm -hmm. friend of mine said, hey, I'm doing this race. And I, for whatever reason, the kid was the president of Equinox, Scott DeRue. And I said, uh, dude, I bet I can win that race. Mm. And he was like, have you ever done an ultra? No. Have you <laughs> ever run with a pack? No. Have you ever camped? Nothing. So no why, why would you think you could win it? Because in my mind, I'm like, holy shit, you got to run 25 miles every day and one day is 50 miles for mm -hmm. a week. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, I can't imagine that anyone's trained more than me over for the last two years short of like Olympic or professional runners. And I don't think they're going to be there. And I was like, I tell, <laughs> I said to my wife, I'm like, should I, am I crazy? Should I do this? And she's like, well, you always talk about doing things outside of your comfort zone and the only growth comes, you know, she started quoting all my cliche <laughs> shit. She's like, the only growth comes from being Those uncomfortable. Those are just words. I said, uh, <laughs> I said, you're right. I'm doing it. And the funny yeah. thing is I was like, I, uh, she was like, yeah, go ahead, do it. You can go there for a week. But then she was like, how much will it cost? I'm like, oh, it's not even that bad few grand. She's like, oh, okay, I go, but the flight is super expensive. And she's like, nah, we'll take the kids to Hawaii before we do that. And luckily, thank God, I had a few um, brands that I've worked with, like Athletic Brewing, uh, Athletic Greens, Roan, and uh, HVMN. They came mm -hmm. through and they all helped me out and uh, offset some of the costs. And it's funny because the guy at Athletic Brewing, when I came back, he was like, dude, I can't believe you won. And part of me was like, 
what do you mean you can't believe it? I told you, <laughs> I said, I told you I was gonna win. He's like, do you know how many people call us and tell us they're gonna do things and never ever do it, don't even come close? Yeah. And I was like, no, I, I can't even imagine. I mm -hmm. would have died trying. Mm -hmm. I would have come back like injured. If I, or I would have been like, okay, I came in third, but I'm getting them next year. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I think people say they're gonna do these crazy things. I think it's a, a small set of people that say they're gonna win. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. like for a lot of people in that race are probably like, they're gonna finish it. Yeah, to most of them. To have the mindset, I'm gonna win this and say that, <laughs> that's what people, people are too afraid to put their goals out there usually. That's right. And, and, and including when that goal is I'm gonna win, that's like most people avoid that because then you look like you failed when yes. you don't win. Yes. Or you, you're embarrassed that you. And I would have been all those things. Right. That's and so, why I said it. But Right, but that's that's what sets you apart. Right, and you. Well, out there telling people, "Hey, here's what I'm doing. This is this is it." I don't mm -hmm. say it like at all from a point of arrogance. I say right. it from a point of accountability. Like, "Yo, I think I can win this race. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you can win? I think I can win the Boston Marathon until someone proves me wrong." <laughs> I mean, if, 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 it's almost foreign to me to like not think that. Yeah. I mean, I think for the competitive runner, I think that the only difference is a lot of people don't say that out loud. Mm -hmm. But for me. Saying it out loud is not, I, I would never want it to be misconstrued as arrogance. I'm saying it because I do believe, part of me does believe that. And by saying it, I'm creating accountability and pressure for myself that I need to mm -hmm. keep working. So right. like, I'm, all, I'm obviously, I'm gonna run, but eh, maybe I'll run without my backpack today. You ain't gonna get a day off without that pack in the fucking desert in, in Mongolia. Right. So I'd put, you know, 21 pounds of water bottles and towels in this backpack in June in Nashville, the whole bag and the towels would all be soaked with sweat after like 10 to 20 miles. It was so, I mean, after the first day I was like, holy shit, what have I done? I'm First day of what training or training the race? with the backpack. Okay, yeah. I was like, I'm not even going to finish. <laughs> My heart rate was through the effing roof. I really? mean, oh, dude, the same effort level that I would put out to run like seven fifteen a mile for for ten miles, I was putting out the same like the perceived effort mm -hmm. and running like eight thirty nine minute miles and dying. Mm -hmm. And it was just a different, you know, it's a different feel when you have that weight on you. It's like different exertion on your body. So everything was sore after I'd run. Yeah. And I was like, but by saying I thought I could win and asking these brands to work with me. Yeah. Dude, you know how it is. I was telling to my wife, I'm like, I've created pressure like a professional athlete. These brands I got mm -hmm. out there, they're gonna live and die with my success. Like I cannot go there and not empty the tank. Like I have to either win or come back dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know what that attitude reminds me of? A lot of Brady. You know, Brady, he wasn't just like going to show up and have a good season. That's right. Is win the Super Bowl. Yeah. And so he made it to 10, won seven, but he was not afraid. I mean, I've heard stories about him, you know, talking about the offseason. Edelman, I think, shared this on his podcast that Brady would be looking at, you know, a date in whenever in January or whenever the or February, whenever the Super Bowl is. And, and Edelman would be like, what's this date about? And he's mm. like, that's the day of the Super Bowl. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, so that mindset reminds me of, hey, you want to win? That better be your goal. You don't, you you just don't win be. by accident. It has to be. You're not going to go there with a goal of being competitive and accidentally win. Right. Like, because when the going gets tough, you're going to be like, 
If I'm in the top three, I'm still okay. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, when I when you think of when I, I think of Brady, I also think of guys like Aaron Rodgers. Like I love the way that guy gets after it when they tore his Achilles and he's like, yeah, I'm going to try and get it back by the end of the season. You're like, dude, you're yeah. torn Achilles, like <laughs> see in eight in nine months, whatever. And he's like to see him back out there hiking the other day with uh, Robert Kennedy. And yeah, I just like guys that speak their mind and it's not popular and it's not it's not easy to, to put out a dissenting view. Right. And I respect everyone's opinion, but I love when someone isn't afraid to speak their mind and speak against the, you know, widely accepted narrative. Yeah, and that's yeah. not to take a social position on anything. It's just to say, I appreciate and respect people that speak their mind. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to vilify the guy because he doesn't agree with us. Like, what the fuck? What, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. what, what is going on here? Yeah. So... I know he's a big fan of the podcast here, so I hope he's listening and uh, keep love, fighting the good fight. Yeah, I, I love Aaron Rodgers. I love Tom Brady. I love Edelman, too. I mean, Edelman was a freaking warrior. Dude, I was at the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue party in New York with uh, my friend Neve Shulman, who is the host of Catfish on MTV, and he was on oh. Dancing Star. Super nice guy. He's a big runner. Yeah. And he's, he was connected with someone and he was like, come to this party with me. Actually, they are own, Sports Illustrated is owned by um, uh, Authentics Brands Group and they own Reebok and Brooks Brothers. And those guys have been incredibly good to me. I've been working with Reebok for the last two years. And uh, so shout out Authentic Brands Group. But we went to this party and Edelman was there. And I don't know if he recognized me or Neve told him that I did the show, but he's like, hey, what's up, man? And I was like, dude, my kids are huge, huge fans. When we throw passes, they're like, Dad, I'm Edelman. Hit me on the thing. <laughs> he goes, give me your phone right now. I've got a video. He's like, hey, right out, boys. This is Julian Edelman. I heard you Boston guys are like looking for trouble. You know? <laughs> but he called That's... them all by name. He's like, hey, Jack Luke Cameron. I see you guys. I sent it to oh, them. They man. were like, my wife was like, they are losing their mind. That is now awesome. they want to, they don't have their own phones. We have like some floater phones that they can take when when, when needed because we don't mm -hmm. let them use social media, obviously. Right. And uh, they were, she was like, oh, they all want to take the um, family phone to school to show all their friends their mm -hmm. video message from Edelman. But I that's what I mean. Same thing with like Rock and Edelman, these guys. Like you know what an impact it makes for a little kid like yeah. that. Even Dana, like bring your son. He wasn't like, can you come to the UFC? He's like, mm -hmm. bring your son. Yeah. That's and it just makes such a difference on the kids. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, it could change the tra trajectory of their life. You 100%. know what I mean? Because they have this dream and the, the, the dream seems real when they've watched it or That's met right. these people or had these people speak their name even. It's crazy. Yeah. So then you're like, I can't let this person down or whatever. I mean, it's, oh, yeah. it's the weird things that we, we can trick ourselves with. Um, I, do, I did want to say, did you see that? Uh, I think it was some Edelman documentary about how hard his dad trained him. Yeah. I would love that. I, I love that. Cause I've, I've, I've often felt that can bad. Go, that can go bad. I felt bad about how hard I pushed my boys before. Yep. And so I've seen, I mean, I've seen, and I know it can go bad, but it seems like it worked out for Edelman. Yeah. No, yeah. look at, here's a perfect example. Mm -hmm. I have three sons. They are so wildly different. The little one, like I said, he trains jujitsu at least three nights a week. And for a while during wrestling season, he'd go to wrestling two nights a week. So two nights a week, he'd train for like 90 minutes at wrestling and an hour in, in jujitsu back to back. They mm. started 10 minutes apart. So sometimes when he comes home and he's like, dad, I don't want to train. It's like, I wouldn't never say this to the other kids because they don't have something that is like, they're almost like they're calling. It's not their thing. They play basketball. They play, they play all sports. 
but they don't they don't have like the passion that he has, but it's hard to keep him on point. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, dude, I can't force this kid to go to jujitsu. Like I can't make him go. And some days it's like a fight. And then I'm like, all right, fine, don't go. And then my wife steps in and is the voice of reason and talks to him for two minutes and he's ready to go. She's like, you just got to talk to him the right way. <laughs> yeah. But inevitably he'll come out of there. It's like I always tell people, no one goes for a hard run or a workout and then regrets it. No. Every single time he comes out of jujitsu, every time when he didn't want to go and he's like, dad, I'm glad I went. Yeah. Did really good. Yeah. And, um, but my middle son is, I don't know where he gets it, but he's obsessed with outdoors, like all the man skills that I don't have, fishing, mm-hmm. hunting. I, I don't know where it comes from. We got him a bow and arrow for a, a bo- what's what's it called? Recurve. A recurve yeah. for Christmas. Never, I've never shot it with him because I don't even know how to like put the string on it. <laughs> but he's like, Dad, when are we going to do the um, shoot the bow? Mm-hmm. But now I'm now. going home to show him my new bow and train him up. But yeah. he's going to... I know what's going to happen in the next couple of years. Once he gets good, we're going to be, I'm going to be calling you and being like the friend that put you in the awkward position of being like, please take me hunting with my <laughs> 15 year old son. Yeah. He's like, he's dying to do it. He, he goes, he fishes at the little ponds in our neighborhood by himself. Really? I went down there a couple of times with him. It's so embarrassing. I caught a fish. I'm like, dude, I got one. Get it off the hook. He's like, Dad, grab it. I'm like, I'm not touching it. You do it. <laughs> Such a baby. Oh, it's a, no, you're not a baby. You just haven't grown up around it. No, I mean, I don't because know walking around Boston wouldn't be, it would be a lot harder than touching a fish. So, oh, hell yeah. I mean, it's, survi- it's different. Surviving in Boston. Um, I'm curious. So what's your goal with the book? Uh, is it to inspire people? What do, you, what do you think? I, yeah, no, that's a very good question. <laughs> yeah, One that, that the agent says in the proposal, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. I think it's to, um, I don't want to say inspire and sound like a corny, like it's a self-help book, but I want to give people an example and with, with my own actions of what's possible when, like you would say, when an average guy just wants to be, doesn't want to settle on mediocrity. Mm-hmm. When you decide that you're not gonna settle for being average, it's amazing what you can do. And it's all a very simple formula. The person who works the most typically is the best. Mm -hmm. The guy who has the big muscles in the gym, he probably lifts weights a lot more than you do. The guy who's winning the running race, he's training more. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I came to grips with that concept and just started training, it became like, both my, my therapy, maybe my replacement addiction. And, you know, maybe that's my advantage, but I don't care. I like the life I have now a lot more than the addicted loser life that I was living. Mm-hmm. Lying to everyone, including myself, about when I'm going to get sober, lying to my wife, lying to my friends. It was, I was disgraceful. So maybe this is my penance that I'm like, you don't get any days off. You fucking used all your free passes up. But I think that the book, I'm hoping that it can you know, inspire and be in, in, in provide some motivation to someone who's, you know, even if, even if you can help a small handful of people that are going through addiction to say like, yo, when you're in it, that doesn't seem like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's like what we were talking about on the run. The reason people that are fit and good athletes, runners, you know, good physiques, the reason that's such an awesome flex is because you know the commitment, the sacrifice, and the delayed gratification that they had to deal with to get there. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen overnight. And when you're going through recovery, that first week of like detoxing and withdrawing from the drugs is hell on earth. I mean, imagine being the sickest you've ever been and it won't go away and you know it's not gonna go away for 10 days. Mm -hmm. 
And you can end it at any minute by being like, oh, let me just take a couple just to like, this is the big lie all addicts tell us. I'm just going to wean myself off. I'll just take a couple. Mm-hmm. Two days later, you're back to full blown taking pills every single day, three or four times a day. I'd take them in the morning. I'd take them at lunch and I'd take them after dinner to mm-hmm. chill. And I justify every single one of them. And um, what I'm hoping that pe- some people realize is, yo, I promise you, you go into that dark tunnel of recovery. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's like training. You might not see it for a little while, but you have to fucking blindly believe that it's at the end of the tunnel. You just have to keep going. Yeah. And I'm hoping that the book can, I mean, it's not just a book about addiction. It's just about my own personal journey and some of the things that I've dealt with. And as much about recovery, it's about turning weaknesses into strengths. We cannot mm-hmm. control what happens to us. We can only control our reaction. Okay, that sounds cliche and corny. Fuck this guy. I get it. But right. let me tell you, when I slapped that guy in the face for like, you know, thank God it was only a few hours where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to move back to Boston. I have no money. I barely made enough money to pay my bills in New York. I had student loans. Mm-hmm. I turned that into a huge strength. It became like a calling card. Like the, the clients that I had as a result, they loved that part of my personality. Mm-hmm. The addiction, most humiliating thing that's ever happened to me. I've now turned that story into like a building block to say, look, yo, look what's possible. I did this. I'm demonstrating to people like you can do this. I was telling you earlier, I think that when you see someone who's gone through the recovery or withdrawal process that I've gone through. It's like seeing someone who's like extremely overweight and then you see them a year later and they look like the rock. Yeah. And you're like, dude, what the hell? Mm-hmm. That's how I feel. That's how I view people that have gone through real addiction, like a heroin crack, that like hard drug addiction, like daily use. It's so hard to do. It's so hard. To, your brain chemistry is altered forever. Right. And that's the part that I struggle with now is knowing that I'm not the same person I was and I used to like myself more than I do at times now, but I can't ever go back there. So it's no sense in like fretting over like, like Jelly Roll said when he won the CMA, like the windshield's bigger than the rear view mirror for yeah. a reason. It's like, right. it's important that you recognize what happened, why it happened, but it's much more important to focus on what's in front of you. You can't change anything, but you can change what happens tomorrow. And again, I, the reason that these fucking corny or cliche sayings stick around is because they're true. Right. Tomorrow, that can be just one day or that can be day one of the new journey. Right. And it is nothing to stop you. Like you can have everything. Cause there yeah. are people out there that are watching things like I'm doing, but more so what you're doing. I'm saying you can do everything he's done. There's no like superpower there. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're obviously a good hunter, but like that's a learned skill. Someone right. could acquire that. Maybe yeah, not to your extent, to the extent you have, but I mean, Joe Rogan didn't know how to bow hunt when he started. He's shooting elk. I mean, yeah. he, there's people out there that are demonstrating what's possible. So it doesn't have to be running. It doesn't have to be hunting. But if you're seeing this and there's something you want to do, this should serve as motivation that, <laughs> to use your words, we have two very average guys yeah. that have just decided, like, I don't like being average. Yeah. I don't. It sucked. Yeah. I felt like I wanted to be recognized as being like, uh, successful, uh, something I, I wanted to have traits that people admired. And there was only one way to get them mm-hmm. to go through the fire. Right. And it's available to anyone. The, the, the gates open, come on in. Yeah. It's uh, for me and for you, it seems like the, the answer to that, what do I do to be, uh, undeniable essentially is work every day. 
That's it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in three days. I don't know what's going to happen in two days, but I know what's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to run that fucking mountain. <laughs> and, the, and the weather. I guarantee you and that. And the weather does not matter to me. <laughs> it doesn't. And it's like, you know, you see people all the time like, you know, oh, what, what do you do for legs? Or, oh, oh you're on PEDs because you got <laughs> this and that. I'm like, just fucking run a mountain every day, dude. I mean, what, what are you doing? You, until you do this for decades, then, you know, I guess you don't have, you That's can't really exactly say shit. That's exactly what I say is like for people to cast dispersions without being in the fight themselves. I'm like, if you were doing this kind of work and it wasn't working for you, then I'd say like, okay, well, let's look at why. Mm -hmm. But there's no one else that's doing this workload and not having success because anyone else to putting in this kind of work is having success and they're way too busy to like shit talk and hate on the people that are achieving their goals yeah like yeah. there's no one successful out there telling their friends like dude look at all the people i trolled today <laughs> no <laughs> right i know it's uh they might tell their other loser buddy about it and they, <laughs> they, they would like it but uh i was gonna ask um i don't think we talked about this is you worked at was it the prison or jail it was a prison. Prison. Well, so, the prison has a section that's a prison, and then they also have a jail as well. For people who don't know, jail is where people are being held waiting trial. Like oh. you could, you could technically get bailed out of jail if you have bail. I mean, obviously, if you've yeah. killed someone on camera, you might get no bail. Mm -hmm. Although no bail seems to be like few and far between these days. You could chop someone's head off on. Uh, they want to let TV everybody out, and they'll yeah. give you bail. Well, you got to think about it this way. We're all innocent until someone proves us guilty. Yeah. So the reason that their bail exists is because I haven't been guilt proven guilty of a crime. Mm -hmm. So why should I sit in jail for the next year? Dude, right. jail is no joke. Jail and prison are two different things. And jail is terrible. You really? have very, oh, dude, you have very few rights. Mm -hmm. You got one dude who's on a $1,000 bail for drunk driving and another guy who killed 75 people. And yeah. they're all in the same facility Together. waiting trial. So you know, to get no bail. But there's also instances where you you know this guy is on camera killing someone, like he shouldn't have bail. Like, yeah. sorry, your yeah. bail is revoked. But they're all together. That's right. And, yeah. then, and then the prison is people serving sentences. Mm -hmm. And in the prison, then there's different levels of the prison. There's like a maximum security, what you would call a maximum security. And then there's like some modular units and mm -hmm. work release. And <laughs> one time I was, <laughs> this is just a fun, funny side story. I was working at... Um, so I worked full times in this in this full time in the summer, while I was in while I was in college with a bunch of college buddies because the union guys there like the other guards they all want to take vacation in the summer so oh, they hire a so summer help in. yeah yeah but they gave you like four hours of like classroom training which was in hindsight a joke again mm -hmm. it was like kind of like the trading desk it was more like hazing it was like I trusted the inmates more than half the guards <laughs> seriously yeah so. I'm working there one day and you get assigned different posts every time you work, more or less. I mean, some old timers would have the same, like, okay, you're at the guard shack down in the in the parking lot. You never see inmates. It's like the mm -hmm. easiest job and you see just the visitors. And other guys are in like, okay, you're in the isolation cell. You're on the, you're in the ball field. Guess what's going to happen in the ball field in the summer? People are going to fight. Yeah. <laughs> and, and dude, when there's a fight, all the doors close. If you're out in the ball field and there's 200 inmates and Ooh. two guards... That's not good. You better hope they don't have a problem with you because they will beat the shit out of you. Mm. There is not, this is like, not like Shawshank. This is mm. more like Oz. <laughs> oh God. They, dude. One time an inmate said to me, if you don't have that badge on, I punch you right in your face. I was like, oh yeah, motherfucker. I went to put my hands on the badge, take it off. He punched me right in the face. <laughs> 
Dude, no questions asked. <laughs> then what happened? Oh, then the other guards came and they bundled them. You take them down to isolation. Yeah. And like give them a beat and, you know, typical stuff. But yeah, still, yeah. I was like, I'd rather not have a punch in the face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I get assigned to work release. And one of the benefits of being in work release is you get to go on, um, you get to go like kind of off campus to like AA meetings. You're starting to get more and more freedoms as mm. you're like segueing to like release date. Right. You know, they're, they're almost there. So typically the guys don't F around. They're, they're in good behavior because they're almost out. Pretty much. Yeah. But they're still idiots a lot yeah. of the times. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's undercover security that works for the sheriff's department in the prison. They kind of like float around. They'll go to these different meetings. They're undercover. Yeah. So one of them- Listen for yeah, the, shit going on. Yeah. And they'll yeah. sit in on the meeting just to make sure they got the inmates when they're not being supervised aren't doing anything crazy because they're crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and- uh, so the guy comes, the detective comes up to me as I'm standing outside in the, with this like 10 passenger, big giant van. And it's just me. And I probably look like I'm 13. I'm 18, <laughs> but I'm, I look really young. And uh, I'm in a full like police uniform and I'm standing next, <laughs> next to the van. The guy goes, hey, so-and-so like Tyrone Jenkins was drinking. Stop at the main building. We're going to take him out of work release and bring him back to the main maximum security prison. He's, he's screwed. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, no problem. I don't care. It is what it is. I'm driving. And, you know, prison is super segregated. So the black guys are sitting in one section of the van. White guys are sitting in the other. And there's a white kid sitting next to me in the front seat. Because it's like, it would be like your substitute teacher at a high school full of fresh kids, like mm -hmm. punks. Mm -hmm. so, but some of them are cool. You're like, hey, what's up, man? Oh, cool. Well, uh, you mind if I put on the radio? No, no, go ahead. So we're driving. And I see them in the, I see the, the black guys all congregating, like four or five of them. That's and I'm right. like, oh man, what's going on? I come to a, a red light in, uh, in Cambridge, like, so kind of in the inner city. And we're going out to Billerica, like suburb where the, where the jail is, the prison. And the dude sprint jumps for the side door, opens the door and jumps out of the van. Like, I don't have a weapon. There's no, <laughs> they're not in, they're not in jumpsuits. They're not in stripes like a movie. So he jumps out. So. As he does, I turn to grab him and kind of fall out of the driver's seat and start to get him. And the passenger, who's like kind of my buddy, you know, where like <laughs> I see him every day, he instinctively goes to help me. Yeah. And then quickly realizes, like, oh my God, what am I doing? I I'm gonna, they'll, they'll kill me. Yeah. So he jumps back and now the van is rolling out into traffic in like, mm. you know, like a major intersection in like kind of downtown of a city. So he jumps in the driver's seat puts it in park and now i'm scrambling to my feet and the guy's standing we're both standing in the street and i'm like dude what the fuck are you doing yeah get back in there and I'm you're like, 18 yeah and i'm like i'm like a, a, a kid about to get in trouble i go dude what are you doing the guy's right behind us get in the van we're both gonna get in trouble <laughs> he goes he goes no i'm jen man they caught me drinking i did i'm gonna beat catch another case yeah i said dude you got three seconds to get in this van or I'm driving out of here without you. Mm. He got back in the fucking van. Dude, <laughs> the whole way back to the prison, these guys teased him mercilessly. They were like, oh, the worst, worst escape attempt in history. Oh, no. And then I was like, as we pulled up, I'm like, oh, there's no way I'm going to write a report with all this bullshit. It's oh, like, my God. It was God. like the day before Christmas. Yeah, I was just, like, all right, brother. Merry Christmas. Good luck. Like it never yeah. And he was like, all right. And then, and then of course, the other inmates were like, Ken's the best. <laughs> Ken for mayor. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that, that's... That's a good depiction of what kind of everyday life was like there. It was like one minute someone punching you in the face. The next minute a guy's like, hey, you want some of these ramen noodles? I just made a whole batch. Yeah. Sounds like a shit show most of the time. But that, what I was going to ask is like, I mean, 
here, if you work at the jail and corrections, it's not a bad job. I mean, they're making, you know, maybe 70,000 a year, you know, you're going to work, you know, whatever, like, was that a good job back there or a terrible job? I mean, like what you're describing, yeah, it's a good job. I don't want to disparage anyone, but I'm mm -hmm. telling you, that was the worst job I've ever had. And I mean, I was a roofer, a landscaper. I did every friggin' job on the sun. I would, it's like you're an inmate. You're, you have to spend eight hours a day, five days a week in a prison. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's nothing nice happening there. Right. It's, it's only risk. You don't get paid a lot of money for what you're doing. And uh, it's a f sad reflection of society. Yeah. Because, look, some of the guys are cool. They got caught doing stupid things. But to get sentenced to jail, you have to make a lot of mistakes. Right. I mean, OJ killed two people and didn't go to jail. Mm -hmm. Like, you, If you have money in defense, you can pretty much get away with a lot of crimes. So right. by the time you get convicted of enough crimes that you are actually doing time. Yeah, you're no a one, fuck up. No one there is going to be like, I'm innocent. But of course, there are guys there that were wrongly convicted. The mm -hmm. the the worst case was there was a guy there who was convicted of molesting a bunch of kids at a daycare and was later proven to be innocent. Can you God, imagine? Dude, terrible. this guy was terrorized. I bet. And this was a normal, nice guy. Like and he I didn't do it. He was proven innocent and let out of jail. Like, dude, his wow. mother and his sister, they ran a daycare. They were adults. They got, his name was Jerry Amaralt. It's a, there's a, there's a, um, a documentary about it. Hmm. And I'm not saying he did or he didn't do it. I don't know, but I, I believe his conviction was overturned. He's out of jail. But dude, that guy was treated like a convicted pedophile. Hmm. You know what that life is like in prison, dude? Probably terrible. <sighs> I, I don't even know how he didn't kill himself. Mm. It was, I mean, everybody. How long was he in? He probably did 20 years. Oh my God, oh, 20 dude, years. Imagine, everybody hates you. The guards, the inmates. No, I mean, you're a child, you're a rapist. The, the, the things that he was accused of doing were so heinous that mm. you were like, anyone with a, a half a brain would listen to the charges and listen to the description and be like, there's no way that someone could have done this in front of all these kids and no one else saw this. It was, it was insanity, mm. but it was like a modern day witch hunt. When you think about the, when, when you look during the documentary, they explain how the trial went and the testimony. And listen, if someone out there knows the case and is involved and doesn't agree with me, <laughs> I'm not trying to be offensive or, mm -hmm. but looking at the case objectively, it's hard to think that this guy was guilty of these crimes. Mm. And I, I actually knew him like really well because I'd see him every day for like years. Mm -hmm. And he was always super kind, super friendly, like, hey, what's up, man? Had no problem talking about the case and being like, yeah, it's bullshit, I didn't do it. But oh. a lot of people believed that he didn't do it. Yeah, wow. Crazy. I couldn't imagine. You know, but then you'd be talking to him and then and a few minutes later, I'd be walking around the ball field with a guy who was convicted of uh, murder for hire, <laughs> a convicted hitman. <laughs> Convicted. You yeah. got to have a lot of in, uh, uh, evidence against you to be convicted. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that's a, uh, I, I don't know. Um, so there was no probably like decision like, oh, I shouldn't quit this job. It's a good job. Maybe I could just make a career of this at that, that time. That job was my uh, motivation to move to New York and realize I've got to start studying. I've got to get out of here. I'm screw I've already like taken sociology. I can't mm. change my major. I'm just going to get that. Maybe I'll get a master's degree after, but I cannot do this. Because mm -hmm. when I first got the job before I started, I'm like, I'm good. I'm going to have this civil service job. <laughs> the yeah. best is great benefits. Yeah. Like, like somehow benefits are like this unattainable, like golden goose of benefits. I'm like, mm. dude, you got benefits? I'm like, you realize you can buy them. Like you, right. you can pay for anything you want. Okay, mm -hmm. they're expensive, but it's not worth, you're not going to sacrifice your career 
because something had a good benefit package. Yeah. Like that's, that's, that's why a lot of people, like where I used to work, a lot of people would say we had good benefits, which we did. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was different. And that is great. Yeah. But it's not a reason to t pick a career path. Yeah. It's no, that's understand. like settling, unless that's a job that speaks to you and you want to do that. And that's mm -hmm. great. I'm, I'm with it. Yeah. But for me, I was like, nah, I don't want this. Mm -hmm. I don't want this life. But it was, uh, that place was so interesting, changed my life in so many ways, including having these crazy stories to tell. But um, I worked there with uh, Mickey Wood, who they made the movie The Fighter about. And his brother, Dickie Eklund, who was played by Christian Bale, he was in the jail while Mickey and I worked there together. Mickey only worked there for like two years, but- When was, with, how old was he then? He's probably a few years older than me. So if I was 18, he was like 23. Mm. He'd work there. And then on the uh, weekends and at night, he would drive a- um, a steamroller on the highway, paving really? company. Oh yeah. And so then when, he, when would he train? Anytime he could. The wow. guy was unbelievable. But mm. you know, and then he had that fight with Arturo, the first fight with Arturo Gotti, where I saw the fight on it was on HBO. I'm like, oh my God, they're putting Mickey in with Arturo Gotti. He's gonna get killed. Mm -hmm. Cause Mickey was good, but he was like, you know, no offense, like a club fighter. He mm -hmm. wasn't, and he won. And it changed his whole life. They had a trilogy. They made millions of dollars. He's built a career from that. And he's like, couldn't be a nicer person. Mickey mm. Ward is like the salt of the earth. How's he doing now? Good. Yeah. Does that. this thing. He's got an apparel line like Mickey Ward boxing. He's got a mm. boxing gym in Boston. You know, he's doing his thing, living in Lowell, Mass. Oh man. That's where he was like in the movie. I remember. That's right? exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. no, no like CTE type stuff. Because I mean, he um, was he in some wars. Probably does. I think he had a detached retina. He's yeah. Like you know, but that's like one of those things where it's like, I don't know, is that his real personality or is he affected yeah. from fighting? He's just a jovial, cool guy, though. Yeah. Well, I guess it could be worse, right? <laughs> yeah. He, he's he's one of those guys like when I was growing up, where he just was super comfortable moving in that chaos, and it's like. It, for me, mm -hmm. the chaos of my childhood and growing up the way I grew up was like kryptonite. I, I was an anxious, uncomfortable mess. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. I had sports. And as a young kid, I was a really good athlete. And through high school and college, the other kids just caught up and just got better than me. Some mm -hmm. kids were just destined to be good. We all did the same things, worked just as hard. It wasn't a work ethic thing. It's just like a, at a certain level, you're like tapped out. And... Um, I never was comfortable in my surroundings. I didn't like where I lived. I didn't like living with my family. Everyone was, you know, my brother would end up being an inmate in that prison. My stepfather was uh, was an inmate in the prison before I worked there. And right when I went start my either freshman or sophomore year, he gets out of prison and my, my mother and my stepfather sit me down and they're like, hey, you know, so-and-so's got a new job. He's gotten out, you know, he's out now. He's got a job. Okay, yeah, cool, Your stepfather? Cool. Yeah, I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, yeah, no, no, wait, we just want to tell you, he, he got a job, he's going to be a janitor. I'm like, all right, cool, good luck with it. And he's like, yeah, at your high school. I was like, I was literally like, can you guys just kill me? Whack me in the head with a hammer. Like, why are you doing this to me? And they were like, how dare you be so selfish? You know, and it was, yeah, yeah dude, it was. Was it as bad as you thought or? In hindsight now, it wasn't, um, you know, it's, I don't know, how bad is it? Occasionally someone would be like, is that your dad? And I'm like, no, that's not my dad. <laughs> like, thank God my dad would come around to like my sporting events. So most of my friends knew your my real dad. dad. Yeah. Yeah. But I lived with my mom and my stepdad. But mm -hmm. yeah, it was like, I was like, of all the like, 
cruel things that they did to me over the years, that was the coup de gras. Oh, I man. was, dude, I was so bummed. I bet. Now I can look at it and laugh, but there was nothing to laugh about at the time. Now I was it's a like, good, it's a good part of your book. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, the it's, trauma and the addiction. Oh man. Yeah. It's a, uh, what a, st- I mean, your story is, cr- oh, what did, uh, what did Dickie Edlin, what was, was it drugs? Dickie. Oh Why yeah, was he yeah. he was on, they made a documentary about Dickie that was, um, HBO made a documentary about him and they told him it was going to basically be about his comeback. And really it was called High on Crack Street. And it was about when crack just came out and they were filming him smoking They showed crack. that, didn't they show, like there's a clip of something about when he was in the movie in prison yeah. watching it. And they were gonna, it was going to come out and they're like, guys, my documentary's coming out. And they're all sitting in the About him room. knocking down Sugar Ray Leonard? Yeah. Is that what it was? Did. Yeah. But, but they were talking about his comeback. But they were making a story, a documentary about addiction and crack, mm. the crack epidemic, and recorded him smoking crack, jumping oh. out of windows. And uh, yeah, when he came out, he was devastated. But he's a he's a cool, fun guy. Not like he's just a jovial dude, super funny. Mm-hmm. He's always rolling around with uh, another buddy of mine called Mike Lee. They call him Bean Shooter, mm. the uh, most famous bank robber in Boston. He did time for like accessory to a murder, bank robbery, and he was a hardcore heroin addict. And uh, actually, he's a funny follow on Instagram. I think it's Bean Shooter sixty nine. He's got huge falling, but he keep, he always gets banned from for posting insane stuff. But now he's sober. He runs a sober house and he has a roofing company. But dude, this guy is funny. And it's, it's funny now because people who know him and don't know me, they'll be like, dude, Bean Shooter follows you. I'm like, dude, Bean Shooter is my dude. That's my, is my friend. But not, not Bean Shooter, the bank, the famous bank robber, just Bean Shooter, the sober guy. Yeah. But he's still crazy. Like he oh. does, but he's hilarious on instagram yeah i mean it's super offensive so some people might see it and be like how dare you think this is funny so <laughs> yeah. footnote that some it's not for everyone there's a disclaimer <laughs> yeah 100 yeah. i always tell him like dude you got to tone this stuff down you're not going to get any endorsement deals and you know obviously he laughs it's like <laughs> yeah, he's not cool. the kind that's of guy not the goal getting, he's not getting endorsement deals <laughs> yeah but um yeah man that was that that time in my life that my childhood was um in hindsight traumatizing you know when you're in it you're just like dude this is what everyone's dealing with mm-hmm. we all have our baggage right but when i went to um last year i went to a place called on-site workshops it's like a it's called a trauma healing center but i wasn't looking at it like oh my god i've been traumatized i better go fix myself i was just like dude, I got through this addiction, but I'm not as happy as I should be. And like, mm-hmm. I'm struggling with a lot of things. I'm struggling in my relationship with my wife. At times I'm not the best dad, but I want to be. And I think that that's another thing about when you talk about vulnerabilities, it's like, if you're not going to fix yourself, like how can you help other people if you can't even help yourself? And I know mm-hmm. that I wasn't living the, the quality of life I wanted from an emotional standpoint. So I went to this like five day retreat. The crazy thing is when I was talking to Lance Armstrong in his podcast, he's like, oh, I've been to onsite three times. Mm. Um, the amount of people, when I talk, I guarantee you people will hear this and be like, dude, I've been to onsite. Mm. It's, uh, it's a big commitment, but it's life-changing. It's mm. the most important thing I've ever done for myself. And when I went there, you know, you're in intensive one-on-one therapy, like five, six hours a day for four days, just one-on-one. Then you do some group stuff, which I wasn't as into, but it is helpful, kind of like an AA setting, but it's different. Mm. And um, the woman was like, you know, tell me about childhood and we're talking. It's a normal conversation. It's not like you're, you know, being hypnotized or some bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so we're talking and I'm like, well, I didn't really have trauma per se in my childhood. I mean, it sucked, but 
everyone's childhood sucked. And she's like, mm, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. She's like, would your kids say that their childhood sucks? I'm like, are you crazy? My kids have the best life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so she's laughing and with telling stories and using all these visuals and I'm going through different transitions in my life. And I'm telling her about things that happened that were like traumatic in hindsight. And she's putting it all up on the wall. <laughs> I'm going to try not to get choked up talking about it. It was so traumatizing. And she was like, what if I told you any of this shit happened to your kids? Mm. I was like, I failed. I, if my kids experience any one of those things, I have failed. I am a loser. And she's like, why are you special? And your kids, like, your kids can't, you can handle it, but they can't. Do you think that you're different in some way? And it made me realize, like, we all want to think we're different, but at the end of the day, no one is different. We're all, no, no one's unique. We have unique characteristics, but we're still mm -hmm. people. We'll see right. process pain. We just deal with it differently. And uh, it was a huge eye-opener for me, and that was... I think something that's been massively transformational to for me in my life and and certainly helping with helping me share these stories now so openly and then and then eventually writing about them in my book mm -hmm. um but like i said that's part of the therapeutic process of like letting go of this shit and acknowledging it and dealing with it and that's been night and day difference since night you've and done day that for me night and day yeah because most people from the outside in would look like look at your life and look at all you have and all you've earned and you know you what you have you've earned obviously yep. and say why would you what do you mean you have you have the perfect life why would you be unhappy well you can't just forget everything you were through that's in it. those formative years as a kid and how they how you felt you might block it out yep but you don't forget it and it still impacts you. The way that I was treated and the way that some incidents, some of the things that happened to me get processed. And then when I see my kids, you know, misbehaving or dealing with a situation, the way that I parent them, you can't help but to, in a lot of ways, repeat certain cycles, even though you're not consciously doing it. It's like you only know one way to deal with that the way it was dealt with with you. I don't mm -hmm. have never hit my kids. I mean, when they were little, they might have got a spanking here and yeah. there, but not like not like I got hit. Right, punched. They might have been oh, yeah. hit with a belt like multiple times a week, if not daily. It was crazy. But even then I was like, everyone gets this shit. Mm -hmm. Everyone gets raised like this. <laughs> you know, and the people doing it will justify like, oh, these kids need... Motherfucker, no one needs to be physically hurt to prove a point. Yeah. There's this you have to be more creative. And I'm not suggesting like parent the way you want, but to right. think that whacking a kid around is the way to get him to comply. Uh how's that working out? No one's been beaten yeah. into compliance. It's like the beatings will continue until everyone complies. Well, I've seen till the beatings will continue until morale improves. Yeah, exactly. You know? But you know, you think about when I think back on my childhood too, it's like how many kids were going to school and pretending like everything's okay? hundred percent. That's exactly You don't right. know what they're going through at home because I know I pretended like I was good. Yep. I was a smart ass, did what, nobody knew what I, what happened. Yep. So, I mean, it happens a lot. I mean, it happens to maybe, I don't want to say most, but more than we think, I bet. Having my kids now grow up in a different socioeconomic setting than when I grew up in, I'm realizing that, yeah, some people are terrible parents, but not everyone. Some mm. kids have it pretty damn good and yeah. their parents are good and they're doing the right things. And we I certainly try to do all the right things for my kids. It's like a fine line. Like I said, they don't have a phone. We don't spoil them, but I also want to give them everything they want. Mm -hmm. My daughter the other day was like, dad, Drake's coming. 
And I'm like, oh, Drake. Yeah. And I'm like, Shell, I know she wants to go to Drake. I got to do it. I have to take her, don't I? She's like, she really wants to go see Drake. She's 13. Mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, we're going. But I drive them crazy because anytime we go to any event, sports, anything, I said, listen, if you want to go, here's the deal. With like five minutes to go, I'm leaving. I'm not <laughs> Beat getting, the crowd. Yep. Yeah. I don't want to be stampeded at the end. I get yeah. like a crazy like crowd anxiety. Mm-hmm. So he was like playing the last song. I'm like, you're ready? And she's like, dad, come on. I go, dude, we had a deal on this. She's like, oh, pouts the whole way home. I'm like, I bought you the damn $140 sweatshirt. You went to see Drake. <laughs> yeah. And then the next day she's like, dad, I'm sorry. I was pouting. I was just having so much fun. Yeah. And she's, you know, there was, it was, I tried to do like one-on-one things with them periodically. Like mm-hmm. the little one went to, UFC recently, my daughter, when we lived in LA, we flew to New York and um, saw Frozen on Broadway, which was mm. awesome. Just wow. the two of us. I took out the, the oldest one, went to see Dude Perfect in Louisville. We stayed in a hotel. That was that was the least favorite for me. It was so boring. <laughs> yeah. And then at the end, they did like a church sermon. It was like strange. But um, I got to find the middle one. All he wants to do is outdoors things. So he keeps telling me like, dad, can we go fishing? Can we go hunting? I'm like, I'm going to find something for us to do. But I just, now I know how to shoot a bow. Yeah. That was so therapeutic, by the way. Oh yeah. I mean, as I, as I mentioned in there, the thing about archery is like, you can't be distracted. We're, we're distracted in life all the time. Yep. Nonstop. But in archery, that's all you're thinking about. Oh, like it's today. so rewarding. Yeah, you were so focused on the act of releasing the arrow perfect oh, and hitting that X. It was so fun. And that's what's that's what's beautiful about it. Yeah. Is it takes everything. I can't wait to get home and show the little one, show my my middle guy Luke the bow that you were generous enough to give me. By the mm. way, for everyone listening, I got the sickest bow ever. Don't have bow envy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I can't, I just, I'm so excited. I just can't wait to tell the kids about it. They love stuff like this. I'm going to give you that bow here in a minute, but I had, I was just thinking of one other question that I had. And it's like, because you've been so successful with your running, I'm just curious, you know, people, I think a lot of people, um, accept the fact that, oh, their performance is going to suffer because they're older, right? You know, you people talk about, people talk about, you know, back in whatever, 20 years ago, I could have done this. But to me, I feel better now than I ever have. So it's yeah. like, why would my performance need to suffer? I, I'm curious about how you feel like, have you peaked or are you still getting better? For like 15 years in a row, I kept running faster races. And last year, maybe the last two years, I haven't been able to run faster. I ran a 229.10 in Chicago at the Chicago Marathon. I was less than a minute off my best marathon when I was 52. And uh, on that day, I was like, damn, I can do it. I can like tweak a couple things. But then like when running today, I'm like, man, I am so, compared to marathon shape, Mm -hmm. so out of shape. Like it just takes so much effort to get back there. So. But no, I think that if I continue to, if I focus, there's always things that we can fix. Like I can eat a better diet. I can clean up my diet a little bit and just eat more like high quality food, not to lose or gain weight, just to eat better for fuel. I think there's a few things, but if I think I peak, then it's so easy to like, let that be the first step towards like getting weaker and like slide backsliding. I like to stay in strong enough shape so that I can show up and do anything like People recognize you as an insane runner, hunter. I love knowing I can show up and run with that guy and hold my own. We mm-hmm. can lift weights together and I'm not getting like blown out of the gym. No, and you're strong. You're strong. That's the whole goal of life when people are like, what are you training for? I'm like, life. What do you mean <laughs> what do I train for? <laughs> yeah. That doesn't have to be a goal. So 
I do think in a crazy way that I can run a little faster, but I would also say age is like such a convenient excuse for a lot of people. It's like once you submit to that, it's easy to subconsciously have this silent agreement with yourself that it's like, well, I can't really get better. It's all downhill from here. Mm -hmm. So accept that. And like you said, earlier i i don't feel any different there's a couple things when i look in the mirror i'm like holy shit my face looks old (laughs) honestly and my eyesight is deteriorating i need reading glasses right when i turned 45 for the uh for the 40 year olds out there at 45 i was like why can't i see my phone maybe Mm -hmm. i'm maybe i'm like uh, something's in my eye and then eventually you're like no my eyesight is slipping and Mm -hmm. i've always had 20 20 vision but Physically, I feel as strong. I mean, I can easily do 20 to 30 pull-ups for, for set, several mm-hmm. sets. Like that's my daily exercise. I always, I never skip doing pull-ups. Mm. And I don't, the only difference is, like I said, the eyesight, I look older in my face, but I don't think my body does. It's like holding up and I don't recover well from like missing sleep so mm-hmm. like if i'm flying if i travel like you know across several time zones i notice that i don't bounce back the way i used to like mm-hmm. when i was a kid we could go out drinking and drugging all night and sleep two hours and get up and like you know by noontime you can't even remember that you were hung over right if i mean i don't drink now but if i if i did if i did have a drink and occasionally i have a drink with my wife like i feel it for like the entire next day and i'm mm-hmm. like why did i do that yeah yeah it never fails right but performance wise, yeah, you're still pushing hard. Yeah. Yeah. So I just give a quick shout out to my guys at Athletic Brewing for the uh, non alcoholic beer. It makes me feel a little bit still like a, uh, it's funny that there's a stigma to like not drinking, like somehow yeah, that I makes know. you like less tough. Right. But those guys have, uh, they've done a killer job. Uh, Bill Schufeld and the team there, he was just featured in the Wall Street Journal. And I'm super proud to be associated with, um, with the team at Athletic Brewing and, I know they were like super excited. They were like, we'll send some beer for the podcast. I'm like, man, I'm not bringing a product on someone else's podcast. <laughs> but they, uh, they're they big fans of the podcast. So shout out to Athletic Brewing. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, I was just curious about that just because I know what a, I mean, you're a freak, dude. I mean, I, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that like you said today's run, you said something about you're so far off from earth. It was like way different. I mean, four miles straight uphill. I yeah. mean- that's but it not, was hard. I, 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 all bullshit aside, I did not expect, I knew you were a good runner. I didn't expect to be that you were that good. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, I mean, as a compliment, like I was like, damn, he's going to slow down as we get further into this hill. Cause we're moving. Mm-hmm. And it, if anything, you got faster. And on the descents, I said, <laughs> I had to tell Cam, I'm like, you go ahead. I'm not, this is too technical for me. I don't want to fall and bust my head open, which is definitely <laughs> possible. Descending is a very technical skill, but yeah. man, I was, I was super impressed with your skills oh. on the mountain. Well, thank you. But yeah. how I want to end this is giving you your brand new bow. Just keep hammering Hoyt Torex and you shot so amazing today. So this is, so my, what I do in this podcast, every guest I have here, I consider an outlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people might not know they're an outlier. I've explained why this person is incredible in their field. I don't have to explain you to anybody. People can just look at <laughs> look at you, know of you, already know about you, and they know that Ken Rideout is the fucking man, and he's a stud. He's obviously an outlier. So this is how I love to end the podcast, is sharing my life with outliers, people who I respect, people who have helped me grow or, or pull back the blinders on something and see something from a different perspective, and you have in regard to so much, in regard to your life, your challenges, 
your addictions, your performances. And so I just, I just want to end this podcast, giving you your bow and telling you how much you mean to me. And oh, man, thank you're you very make much. Me cry. Oh, it's so, so kind, so generous. I literally told my wife, I'm like, if I like this shit, I'm going to buy one of those really nice bows. And when you said you're taking this home with you, I was like, come on, man, <laughs> come on. I'm like, I'm just so honored. I mean, when I look at the, your wall of fame at the, um, the bow, the bow rack, bow rack, yeah. bow rack and see all the guests that have been on this show. It's so surreal to me to think like, I'm not in the group with these people. These are like legends so to be here with you and have you say those nice things about me is um man it was it's so surreal and so humbling and uh i was having a very very bad week and uh i'm i feel a lot better and uh so thank you man i appreciate you oh brother you're a legend and uh i'm so thankful that through rob and huberman and you know your circle here we got connected and, yeah. and I'm just, I'm thankful for your friendship, you know, oh, and you, being man. able to spend the day with you and, and share my life with you, as I said. So thank you. I hope everybody enjoys the, the podcast. I know they will because you have so much to offer, but thank you, Ken. I appreciate you. Thank you. And thank you to your awesome fans. When I put on Strava that I was leaving to go, I just put in the comment, like going to Oregon to run with Cam Haynes. Like if I get normally five comments, there were like 500 comments mm -hmm. of like, yes, I've been waiting for this. So <laughs> thank you to all. Thank you. To, thank you, Cam. And thank you to the fans who've been so supportive and awesome. I, um, I, I love everyone. And this is so such an honor. Thank you. All right, brother. Keep hammering. Leupold Optics has been providing my binoculars and eyewear for the last few years. I like that it's an Oregon company and they make such high quality glass. That's all I've really used. And if you can't find what you're hunting, it's going to be tough to kill. So Leupold Optics has really played an integral part in my success these last few years. Thank you, Leupold, for supporting the podcast. I cannot say enough good things about the guys over at Montana Knife Company. I've been using their knives in the mountains for the past three years, and I've been nothing but impressed. They're an American company, their knives are made here in America, and their master bladesmith, Josh Smith, is one of the best knife makers out there. Their culinary cutlery is some of the best I've used, even though I don't use it because I don't cook, but I do use it when I'm eating. But I do know any cook would likely love them in their kitchen. I'm proud to partner with the guys over at Montana Knife and looking forward to some cool new products we're working on collaborating on in the coming months. Head over to montanaknifecompany.com today and use code CAM for free shipping.